1: This is Daryl Cooper, creator of the Modern Made Podcast. Religion, ritual, identity, language, tribe. We tell stories pulled from the fevered dream of human history. Right now you can find our current series, Fear and Loathing in the New Jerusalem. The early history of Zionism and the most bitter and intractable conflict in the world today. Between Israel and Palestine. What happened? Why are they doing this? We're going to get to the bottom of it.
0: listeners of the People's Democratic Republic of Podcast. Welcome to this special edition here, and I promise I will not be spamming the eastern border feed more for this, but as Mark and Dave and a lot of other people requested, I needed to do a Brexit episode, because that's the most requested political stuff going on here in Europe. Well, not really, not only just that, but hey, if we're about to touch on why did this happen and what's what's going on in this... Well, now, I really had to find a competent person with whom to talk about. And you know what? There's a nice little podcast called Decline of the West, and it's it's hosted by the magnificent and glorious Daryl Cooper, whom, whom you might have heard from Martyr Made Podcast. And like, who am I kidding? That guy's like nine times as famous as I am. But yeah, uh, he's here with me tonight on Skype, and I hope that we will have some sort of a coherent discussion, possibly, maybe, well, in a way, at least. And, yeah, enjoy the show, and let's see where this goes. Uh, greetings, Daryl.
1: Hello, everybody. Chris Steps, nice to speak to you on a podcast for once.
0: Oh, yeah, this is the first time we worked together. <laughs> yeah. Scary, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> I, I have to say thank you for getting me into Dark Myths uh, at, at start,
1: actually. Oh, uh, yeah, I think uh, you've been a, definitely a good addition to it, better than I have, actually. I know I'm pretty inactive, so... Uh,
0: I, I don't know. I kind of got into this and it was fun. But on, on the subject... Yeah. Um, yeah. What? What? The first things first. Let's Let's look at Let's look at the facts. We have um, We have this this guy in Hungary, which is running that place as a, as he's saying it, ill liberal democracy. We have Putin, and we have Poland with their jo- with their peace and justice platform. And now, as a surprise, recently, I I doubt. No, actually, those people who listen to this show, they definitely know that you know Brexit happened. And a lot of political commentaries and on Slate's Political Gab Fest and Vox, The Weeds, and you know, uh, all sorts of political podcasts that I listen to, it's been described as a major shock, and a lot, and they have been called racists <coughs> a lot. Those people, it's like it's, it's been said that they voted because they're racist, they're terrible people, and and stuff like that. But you know what? Sure. I, li- I live over here, and I kind of don't don't believe this idea that everyone who voted in brexit would be kind of racist at least not in the sense that would be understood as racism in the united states and secondly it kind of scares me that the media can just portray uh a, a results of a referendum where 52 percent of the voters actually voted for something as a dreadful thing i mean what we're talking about here is just people actually voting for what they think is best for their country even if they are wrong uh, but they 're voting for what 's best for their country. we should kind of accept their decision i mean it's it 's a democratic decision after all sure so, so uh what 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 do you think about this well
1: what i guess t- i have so if, uh, i I got, I got a couple thoughts on that um The first one um is that I think we all should give uh United Kingdom, a great deal of credit, first of all, right? If you think in world historical terms, if you go back throughout all the history we've got of our species and you actually, we're going kind to of take this thing for granted a little bit, at least where I live. But if you think about the fact that you've got a situation where virtually the entire political elite, the entire media establishment, the entire academic and sort of intellectual elite in that country uh, is almost completely universally dead set against this policy, and that the people who are against it are the more uh, socially connected, the wealthier people, and that you've mostly got a group that skews socioeconomically uh, lower on the scale, um, and who are not elites in any of those institutions who wanted this, and it's actually going to go through. Uh, At least it looks that way for now. I mean, that's pretty remarkable in a lot of ways, and Britain deserves some amount of credit for that. Um, when you you know you try to imagine a scenario throughout most of our history and most of the world even today, where the people on the lower socioeconomic end of the scale who are not politically uh, and socially connected can actually override their political and media elites to get something like this done, it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. Um, the other thing is I think that there's a uh, a pretty predictable pattern that's going on all over Europe and in the United States and North America right now, where you have People – you've got two groups of, uh, of people kind of separating themselves out right now, and people will use elites or this or that, whatever it is. But when you really look at what it is um, – I'll use uh, the the example you just used from Western and Eastern Europe, and I would throw Southern Europe into that you know, that category as well, the borderlands let's say. Is that basically what you've got are a bunch of countries who are insulated in many ways from – uh, you know some of the fallout that comes with being on the borderland it 's easy to condemn Hungary from France right because you don 't really have to deal with the things that Hungary has to deal with it 's easy to uh, i mean if you really think about it, you go down the eastern uh, eastern flank and the southern flank of Europe, and it 's always people who are several countries back you know in sort of the rear echelon back ranks being sanctimonious toward those countries. Calling them fascists, calling them nationalists, and all these things, because they're in the people saying that are insulated from the consequences, and you have that on a social level and in, in, within many of these countries. In the United States, mass immigration and multiculturalism is inevitably pushed by people who are, uh, you know, by journalists, by political elites, by employers who would like cheap labor, all of whom. To them, you know, uh, an illegal immigrant or a new unskilled immigrant that's being brought in legally to the country, that's somebody who is going to give you more options uh, as a nanny. It's another person who is going to smile at you as he cuts your grass. That's all it is to these people. It's not a person who is going to uh, take your job away. It's not a person who's going to move in next door with 12 of his cousins and plant corn in the front yard. I had that happen once. Um, they just, you know, these—you have people who are completely insulated from the consequences of the policies that they push, and then they come down on the people who are not insulated from those, and they call them names. They call them racists. They call them whatever they call them to try to beat them over the head with guilt in order to get them to succumb. And it's been working for a long time. But I think that, you know, the uh, the pace and the consequences have picked up so much in the last several years. And with the rise of social media, uh, you know, on one end, you've got uh, you could say the dark side of that. You know, you've got the social justice, political correctness movement that's no doubt been sort of sent into overdrive by social media because people can find each other and gather and get these sort of, you know, this mob mentality going. But on the other hand, too, it's allowed people who have uh, existed but felt very isolated um, and had to keep quiet and kind of remain in the closet because – Um, you know, they were uncomfortable with some of the things that were going on. And now for the first time in their lives, a lot of the time, they're starting to see that there are actually other people out there who feel like that. And so they've been able to find each other as well. And now people are starting to sort of shake themselves out and find out who's who on that question. I really think that that question, um, you know, forget about uh World War Three with Russia and China and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, you can always have something jump off in the South China Sea that catches us off guard or whatever.
0: Oh yeah, people people but don't
1: don't really notice this, but I, I follow South Sea China and oh, it's yeah. way more serious than it seems like. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It's I, Very people amazing. have people have I've been telling just banging the drum on my Twitter feed and on Facebook trying to tell any of my concerned friends that whatever they think is going on in their backyard right now, um, you know, this is very easily could be a a Franz Ferdinand moment in in the South China Sea at any time. But, um, yeah, so I'll wrap this up just to say that uh, I I really think that over the next few decades, um, unless something, you know, a black swan flies in, that's not expected. Um, forget about world wars with China and stuff. We are going to have a nationalist versus globalist conflict that has to be settled in the West before any, anything else major happens. And you're going to find people in countries and regions on uh, on the opposite side of that dividing line that you probably don't expect right now i mean but but it's something that has to be settled before before the west has any capacity to look outward uh, again um and, and act with any kind of a collective will um with regard to the rest of the world that is an internal tension that's going to have to resolve itself and and i'm not so sure um how that's going to look when it happens so Well, um, I'm actually kind of in an interesting position here
0: because I agree to a lot of your sentiments also here and on your decline show, but with one notable difference, I am extremely pro-European Union. It might sound weird to you, but I see Brexit, at least from the (coughs) point of my country, as an extremely positive thing that happened because as much as European Union has its insane amount of faults, like an obscene amount of problems, I would actually love to see Europe form... A super state something like united states of europe i'm one of those weird european federalist guys at the same time being a Latin nationalist which is an interesting combination if you think about it and i'm one of the very few people here who think that that might be a good idea because a lot of them just uh, kind of view at least over here in yeah. eastern europe they view it as a continuation of the soviet union i mean sure. a popular popular statement sentiment here was that you know we left one union why are we in the second one right now so soon
2: yeah, that was one of the things.
0: Um, and the other thing is that what I want to touch about touch upon is that most of those Western European guys, they you know we, we are the problem. And I openly state this because uh, we kind of I, I come from Latvia, you know, as my listeners also know, <laughs> and that's right next to Lithuania and Poland's just there. And we formed a lot of these migrants in Britain. We were those guys yes. who took the jobs. And the thing is, those people who do, did this, the economical migrants, they weren't the best of my country. They were the guys who couldn't like, get a decent job here in Latvia. And we have a huge problem over here in Latvia, and our government is just trying to get them back, because our demographical situation is very, very crappy, and, and we're kind of dying out, and we need those people right. back. So in, sure. this, so in this manner, you know, Brexit was kind of cool, because right now we're kind of hoping that, hey, those guys might actually come back and help our country.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, whenever I have traveled in uh, the Mediterranean, I think everybody has this experience when they go through. Um, everywhere you go from you know Gibraltar to Cyprus, uh, you walk into a bar, you walk into a restaurant, you walk into a club, and it's all just nothing but supermodels from – uh, places that stretch from the Baltics down to the Black Sea in Eastern Europe it's nothing but beautiful Romanian girls Bulgarian girls all the way up to the Baltics you know working as uh, waitresses and stuff in these places Yeah and that and, happens. And,
0: and you know what it was the problem here why would you, why would we kind of migrate to I want to finish my point here I will let you know oh I'm there. sorry yeah, go
2: ahead now,
0: the idea is that uh, the the problem was that we had a strong kind of crash into 2009 with the all economical crisis and everything And you know what my university professor uh, the guys who actually taught me philosophy and history, which I, which is why I have a master's degree. Uh, can you guess how much do they make here in Latvia? You know, you're know, you a university professor. You have a PhD. You're published in yeah. international journals. How much do you think <laughs> they make per month?
1: Well, um, I'll tell you what. Uh, hold on, hold make on. Make a ballpark guess. When Just, I, was in, uh, I was in London uh, one time about two years ago, and there was a Romanian heart surgeon there driving my cab, and he had gone there because he could make more money to send his family in London driving a cab than he could in Romania as a surgeon. And that's anecdotal, but that gives me some kind of an that's idea. That's exactly I even... my
0: point. A university yeah. professor who taught me like everything I know about Plato and Socrates, who was my antique professor, he left to pick fucking berries in Ireland, because yeah. he earned 600 euros per month. That's about around seven hundred dollars per month working at a university, being a professor, and he was a widely published guy here. Hmm. You know, and and that's that's the idea that over over here we I, I see the kind of the benefits of the EU. I, I see where this can potentially go. I, I like the idea of United Europe. I like peace in Europe for starters because you know we we haven't had that in a long while and the European Union has managed that one. But when when people talk about how how being somewhere how these trade deals improve the the economy by a certain percent yeah they kind of do but you know what it improves I don't know lives of programmers by 10% and screws over everyone else by 8% so it's 2% gain yay except that we tend to forget that it's like real lives that True. Right, I,
1: I want to address that, but real quick, I I do want to take a little bit of uh, okay, sorry, man. We we
0: have no, a lot of time here, so yeah,
1: I don't know if I I would say that the existence of the Soviet Union and NATO preserved the peace in Europe a lot more than the European Union did. I'm not sure if the European Union was really too responsible for that. Um, but anyway, that's a side point. You just made a a, a very important one though about. Not just the European Union but globalization in general and the way that it's often treated. It, it, it drives me absolutely insane to listen to some of these establishment republicans in the US or libertarians or what, anywhere you go who talk about um, – even now with, with the uprising of Trump and, and all the right-wing parties and anti-globalization EU parties in, uh, in Europe and Brexit and all that, they still talk about it the same way. They say that the problem here is that we who are free traders, who are globalists, whatever it is, that we have not – we have failed here. And so you're like, okay, so they're starting to kind of maybe get the point. Let's see what this guy has to say. We have failed to explain to these ignorant people why this is good for them and how good this is for our society. That's where we really failed. And then you listen to why they think that, and inevitably they start breaking out numbers. They start talking about – you know, increases in, uh, you know, you get a few basis points of, of GDP gain and, you know, how it drives this and it leads to that. The, the, the whole problem here, as far as I can tell, and this was a thought that just popped into my head when I was listening to one of these Cato guys the other day, is that, how may I put this? So a nation, right, a nation that works, that hangs together, that can act collectively, that can maintain a sense of Cohesion and identity that that works, something that that actually works and doesn't just lose its you know energy to sort of ambivalent anxiety and then fall apart into mush is not a population set over by a state or a government. A, a, a vital nation is a collection of communities interlocked with one another that that have civil institutions that start with the family and then work their way up into you know. Uh, local civic institutions and local governments all the way on up to you know the state in general and the whole thrust of the pro-globalization argument has to do with uh, it's basically that they are willing to destroy communities if it benefits the population and that is completely missing the point of what it means to be a human being and what it means to live in a society. It, you know, here in the United States, you'll hear it all the time. Well, yes, the steel industry and the rust belt got, you know, sent over to other countries that, you know, could, could, could do it more cheaply. Yes, that's true. But look, uh, cheaper steel benefited the auto industry over here in Detroit. It benefited the aerospace industry over here in, uh, you know, used to be California, but uh, Washington, wherever, all these other things. And so think about like the overall rise that this has done in all these other regions. And what the, the point that they're completely missing is that if you go wipe out a city because you take out its entire working class uh, basis for existence, you're going to come back two generations later and that region is still going to be destroyed. I don't care what your GDP is and it's because you don't uproot somebody like uh you know the the your Latvian professor and send him off to Ireland to go to go work uh you know picking strawberries in a field and expect that when your GDP rises back up and somebody has a job for uh what would have been that professor again you don't just rebuild that social capital that's been destroyed. You don't just put back together those local civic institutions that have been completely evacuated. Communities are something that arise over time and nobody really has a a, a tremendous grasp on how that process works. But what we do know is that once you wipe those out, none of us have any idea how to actually consciously put them back together. And, we we think in terms of populations, not in terms of communities. And communities can be governed, but populations can only be ruled. And and you know, it's just that's where we're going. We have this big churning process going on we call it creative destruction. It's this great thing because there's so much innovation and this and that. And look, I understand there are other issues to take into account. And I'm not suggesting we should be like Cuba sitting around driving 60-year-old cars because we don't want to disrupt anything at all. I get that that's necessary sometimes but if you're going to come in and make a decision that you know is going to completely wipe out one of your communities or or have devastating consequences on a whole section of your population to to just do that as thoughtlessly as we do like like our responsibility to those people is to cut them a welfare check afterwards or you know, to 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 give them some kind of job retraining program, as if that forty-seven-year-old laid-off steel worker is going to go become a forty-eight-year-old software engineer just like that. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, that, you is, know? that is one of the one of the few things which I don't understand about
0: the United States. Because uh, when talking about unemployment, for one, uh, Latvia actually does have government-mandated retraining programs, like we don't have. We we have like uh, quite a lot of welfare. But the welfare is more like you get, you get your, your income if you're unemployed that kind of keeps you, keeps you from starving and it's quite a, quite a good welfare to check but you only receive it while you're on some sort of training program or something. And yes. the government actually tries to put you, put you on, on work and I just thought it worked like this everywhere but no it doesn't. <clears throat>
1: And it kind of scares me. You want to hear how crazy it is in the United States. Um, Our unemployment insurance program, which is separate from welfare, this is something that uh, you pay into while you're working. And then if you find yourself out of work, you can collect – they vary it during times of crisis or whatever. But I think it's six months right now. You can get a check um, every two weeks or every week, whatever it is. And while you're receiving your unemployment insurance – If you start going to school or if you actually go into a training program, now you can no longer receive it. And so it's this whole program that encourages dependency. I know a lot of people who have received unemployment because they lost their job or whatever and they went to a community college or a vocational school to get retrained on something. And they had to lie about it on their uh, forms that they had to fill out to the unemployment office. And they couldn't tell them that they were actually taking a class to learn a new skill because they would lose their unemployment insurance. That, that's something that's designed to create dependency, and it's just insane.
0: Wow. Now, this is, this is, all, all of this is getting more and more insane lately. Then again, I, uh, I have to say that the other side, let's just call them the Brexit side, because that's our main theme, You know, they're all a bunch of assholes as well. I consider every politician on the planet Earth to be a pile of scum. <laughs> uh,
2: that,
0: that's my job, to do so. Um, yes. My, 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 my personal hero is Hunter S. Thompson, and, and by proxy, his, his kind of protege in transmetropolitan comic book, Spider Jerusalem, if you haven't read that one, please do. That's, that, that's the comic book okay. that inspired me to do journalism. And you know what? When I see that after Brexit, you know, the, these, these people won, the campaign won, but then the very next day, Nigel Farage comes out and says, oh, yeah, all that thing about uh, 350 million, do- million pounds we, we send to you EU every week. Oh, yeah, that was a lie. Uh, sorry for not mentioning that previously. And then when everyone, Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson says, oh, no, I don't want to be the prime minister. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to do. Nigel Farage, of all people, UKIP leader, United Kingdom Independence Party, whose whole program was this, who was, who was one, of the more, more people, one of the people everyone was look, looking at, you know, just lead the country after this. Nope, um, not, not going to do this too. They just all quit because they, they won and now they don't know what to do. I think they didn't even want to win. They just wanted to yeah. do something. Well, it looks so terrible when, when these people have I, – I think that the Labour Party in the UK, they, they have completely shattered as well. David Cameron's resigned. I don't know who's going to lead that country because <laughs> it, it, it seems well, like – Theresa
1: May just took over as prime minister for the uh, Conservatives. But I mean I think, yeah, you're, you are right about – you're pointing to two things right now. Oh, well, first of all, I'll say I think you're definitely right about Johnson who <laughs> – seems to be a low-rent dirtbag as far as i can tell he's, he's the foreign um, minister right now by
0: the way and one of the more interesting things who who he just said is a direct quote from him from today on news is that quote because of his kenyan origins obama has a natural <laughs> hatred towards the british empire uh, yeah well rs johnson ladies and gentlemen
1: <laughs> i mean i think if you wanted to soften that a little bit you could probably say that uh Obama is part of the academic, uh, you know, tradition of kind of post-colonial theory and everything. And I I can see some of that thinking bleeding into his positions on various things, but leave it to, leave it to somebody like Boris Johnson. You're you're trying to put 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 deeper
0: thoughts into Boris Johnson's head that he's capable of, man.
1: I mean, I, I, Farage, I would say, by the way, I think that Farage uh, is different in one respect in that he was probably right to step down because he, was he he is such a divisive figure in britain and he's he's so just detested by the non uh brexit people by the remain camp and everything that once it's achieved you know, there is a tradition of uh the person who really pushes hard for something and takes all the hatred and everything onto his back, stepping down once something is actually achieved and letting somebody else step up to kind of be the new face of it that doesn't have all this baggage and There's something to that. But with Boris, I agree. And I and I still think you're right about the overall I mean, it, it just it looks exactly like um a group of people who were doing this. They didn't really think that they were gonna win. And so once they did, you realize that they have no plan. They just have no plan for actually what they're supposed to do. These are not people who are prepared to govern Britain either as a part of the European Union or outside of the European Union. And, you know, so what are a lot of these people going to do now? They're going to step back, and inevitably, the Brexit, uh, the way Brexit's going to go is going to be moderated. It's going to have some of the. Um, you know some some of the more extreme parts of it that have been pushed by the by the brexit camp pulled back and then you're going to have a lot of these same people coming out and condemning the people who are negotiating the exit as being you know betraying the uh, the people's vote for brexit and so forth because they're just people who don't want the responsibility of governing but i mean i think when you look at people like trump and boris johnson and boris johnson's worse than trump by the way uh, farage and uh, this is something you see all over the place and, uh, all the time um, is that these are these are not high quality human beings, right these are not aristocrats in any kind of a sense that you would think of It reminds me of i can 't remember exactly what it is off the top of my head, but uh, e m Sharon had this quote in one of his books of aphorisms where he 's talking about Hitler and he said that uh, you know it 's too bad that europe couldn 't generate a higher quality monster or something like that, and you feel that way in some ways, but there's a reason that so many uh, of these right-wing populist types come out like that, and it has to do with what you were saying a second ago about how uh, how do how, how does the left deal with any type of
2: resistance
1: to their multicultural projects? How do they deal with any resistance to? Just any of the stuff that they're trying to push. Is they start calling you names immediately, and they really work hard to try to drive that kind of thinking underground altogether. I mean, you come to the United States today, and you know it is all but socially acceptable—if not, le- it's, it's not legally acceptable—but it is all but socially acceptable to physically attack people for publicly stating views. That, uh, you know, are, are in contradiction of like the most important leftist sacred cows that we have in this country. I mean, the other day we well, I mean, you just have to look at the way things have been going. With a lot of these Trump rallies where people are getting, I mean, physically attacked in a way we haven't seen in decades at peaceful political rallies. And there's some, you know, consternation and we need to have a national conversation about this and so forth. But to, to, to the half of the country that doesn't like Donald Trump or those people. They have, they really have no problem with it. They think that people should kind of tone it down a little bit and don't get too out of hand because it looks bad and it might hurt Hillary Clinton if people start associating that kind of thing with her. But they don't really care. I mean, there really is like a social license to physically attack people who hold these views. And so they're trying to drive any resistance underground associated with being low class, associated with being poor, associated with being, you know, just racist and all these things that in an aspirational society you don't want to be. And so what happens if it is completely socially unacceptable to say this whole range of things that a lot of people do actually believe, then the only person that you're going to get to actually step up and say, you know what? Fuck it. I'll say it. I'll take all the heat. I don't care. A person who doesn't care about being called a racist, a person who doesn't care about being called a sexist or this or that, that's usually going to be an asshole. It's usually not going to be a great person, you know,
0: and I I think I think I think that the guy might actually don't he might actually not really understand the consequences of what he's saying. I don't think I I I don't think Trump even has fully thought out what he's going to do if he wins.
1: No. Not at all. People like that think of themselves as representatives of, you know, <laughs> kind of as the avatars of a movement or an idea and as far as they're concerned that they, they believe that we have uh you know bureaucracies and institutions who are responsible for actually running the country. Their job is to sort of get in there and assert the prerogatives of a certain group of people. And this is something that's very unfortunate in the United States. Uh, we've always had factions. We've always had interest groups. We've always had, uh, you know, people who came in to represent the interests of various groups into the government. I don't know if until the last maybe decade or so, um, at least in in my lifetime and probably definitely not, uh, since the second world war, have we ever really been in a place where people are now being elected to national office who are making no, they're not even pretending to represent the country as a whole. They are running for office and governing as the representatives of, of, a certain group against the interests of other groups. And it's become very, very clear, uh, you know, just in the last couple of years during the Obama administration, and then and then now as this election is starting to heat up on both sides, you know, you've got uh, candidates who are really not making any bones about the fact that, that they are here to govern on behalf of one group against the interests of other groups. You start to get differences that are not differences of opinion on issues, but differences of identity in uh, in. in A society where big decisions are made democratically, they're made by all of us discussing something and trying to come to an understanding. Um, When you have people who don't identify with one another, that means you don't have people that trust each other to be negotiating in good faith, to make decisions that will benefit or at least not harm the country as a whole. And you start to lose that basis for general trust, I mean, you're in real big trouble. You know, you're in real big trouble. I mean, this is this is what you get in a place like Ukraine, say. Right. The problem with Ukraine is that you simply don't have you've got the Russian speakers in the east and Ukrainians in the west who at at a deep enough level simply do not identify with one another. Right. You need to for for a for a self-government to work. You need to have eastern Ukrainians who are Russian speakers and, and so forth. Ready to kill a Russian citizen if that Russian citizen steps on Ukrainian soil, and you don't have that, you know, right now. You have different groups of people oh, who man. don't identify let's, with
0: one another. Let's let's not get into Ukraine. We will yeah. spend our but, whole podcast right, on right, this right. one. I'm
1: right, right. just using it as an example
0: of like yeah, what, happens I, I when... what I know. I know what you're talking about, but it's just oh boy, okay. Ukraine is a subject for for sure. for a later episode because okay. let, let me use a different that. Way. That shit's so deep,
1: right? Let me and use partially American theory. fault, by the way. Still, Um, let me let me, yeah, let's let's gather because we will be there all day. So, let me use Egypt as an example, right? Uh, When um, Mubarak went down and the Muslim Brotherhood is elected to power, and most people knew that that wasn't going to work. And the reason they knew it wasn't going to work, even if it was only on a sort of instinctual level, they kind of had a feeling that it wasn't going to work, was because the Muslim Brotherhood was not really making any bones about the fact that it was there to represent the interests of a certain group of people. And it wasn't really there to be the governor of the entire country. Uh, What happens when you get into a situation like that is you win the election and you try to consolidate your gains as much as possible, try to make them as permanent as possible, try to make it so that the other side can't take back power and undo what you've done. And then the other side inevitably takes back power and they just undo everything you did and they just try to consolidate all their gains and just make everything they do permanent. And it's just this big back and forth seesaw battle with both sides becoming more distrustful and resentful of the other side, and you're heading toward a breakup at that point. I, and am,
0: I am now basically going to quote my favorite philosopher, Alexander Jatigorsky. He speaks exactly about what you're talking about, and what I what he kind of noticed is that the more a country kind of breaks up and these communities break up and the more you don't trust each other is, is when everything becomes politicized. Like you can't go to a certain store because that store is is owned by, you know, guys right. who vote for the other party or something and that that's how it shouldn't be for example for a long time in europe uh like like my economics professor used to tell me it, it, was, it was like this you know okay guys in uh, let's say netherlands they they vote for one party other party something else but they're like day after the election they basically say well nothing's much going to change they're still a community they just have political differences politics yes. shouldn't politics shouldn't determine who your friends are for example yes, yes. and the thing is that you you, it's just politics and people tend to forget that politics isn't what makes a community go. It's just politics is <laughs> the general state, okay? But if you have a friend who votes different from you, you might argue about politics over beer in a pub or something. But just because your your guy at your work or something votes different than you do, doesn't mean you should kind of hate him. And I think yes. that's happening and that's the most dangerous, dangerous thing ever.
1: I think you you know you said it comes with a breakdown of trust and a breakdown of trust I don't know which way you would necessarily draw the line of causality here but a breakdown of social trust comes with a breakdown of non-governmental sort of social institutions right and you can talk about that from the family to churches to whatever you want those things start to sort of lose their authority and you get what you're talking about right where um you know in the United States it was this way for a long, long, long time. Like there was this sort of ideal that politics is, you know, uh, politics is like 10% of our life, like 90% of our life has nothing to do with politics. Like, if we have, if we have a dispute, maybe we go to the same church. And so we're going to go talk to, you know, the priest, and he's going to help us kind of work it through it. But every other civic institution has completely lost legitimacy in many In most Western countries, at this point, right down to the family you know where even the family has lost a lot of legitimacy and, and, and authority, and so you have that situation where now uh, you 've got this kind of population of 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 infants that were raised by helicopter parents and they're used to looking for somebody to solve any problem or discomfort that comes their way, and they look around and there's only the state. That's all there is, is the state. There's just politics because there's no other civic institution, institutions left with any authority. And so any time there's any type of discomfort or dispute or anything, today we take that as a matter to be taken up for public policy. And that, yeah, now everything is political. So now we have to fight over every single little difference we have. And you know when you couple that with you know sort of the concentration of power in the executive branches of governments all over the West, so that now every decision that's made is coming from the highest possible level, and so it's affecting everybody regardless of where they are. Um, you know, uh, you, then you you got real problems. I mean, you know, in the United States, it happened. It really kind of started with uh, the the civil rights laws that were passed, a lot of which you know absolutely were changes that needed to happen, but when you get into a situation where the federal government is determining that different regions of the country can't be trusted to govern themselves. And at the time, some of them couldn't, I mean, it always starts with a good enough reason. It always works out that way. Uh, now they're starting to step in and take control of social policies and, and, and basic, you know, human social interactions sort of uh, on behalf of these states and local governments. Well, now both sides are saying, well, two can play at that game, and so we want to use the federal government to say what people can do about gay marriage. We want to use the federal government to ban gay marriage. Well, now everything has to be a total war, you know, and especially when you've got demographic changes going on in the country because you know, people here's, – here's what people don't, I think, a lot of times understand about divisiveness in a, in a democratic country. And they wonder sometimes why uh, – things ramp up at certain times when they do. And, and there are various reasons. But one of the reasons that we're in right now is you have to understand that um, if you are in, uh, let's, let's just use the United States, and you've got conservatives and progressives, Republicans and Democrats. A lot of people have actually talked about this over the last eight years, you'll have a lot of Democrats uh, gloating, and a lot of Republicans who are very worried about the fact that demographics um, just don't favor Republicans looking forward into the indefinite future for national elections. Well, what happens if you live in a country where, you know, you've kind of gone from democracy to just majoritarian rule, where now everything is on the table, all of our social interactions, our private behaviors, um, everything that we can say and do and speak has been made, uh, you know, a decision that's properly made in the venue of government. Uh, we've, we've, We've sort of conceded that, And now you realize that you are in the permanent 49 percent and that you're probably never, ever going to be in the 51 percent again. Now, there's still a huge, huge, huge number of you. You're 49 percent of the country, but you're not going to be a majority ever again. Well, you almost have to secede at that point, because, I mean, you know, when you're in a when you're in a society like that where the state can dictate so much uh, that was never, you know, that, that never used to really be the prerogative of the state. Once you find yourself in a permanent minority, you know you have to kind of decide how you 're going to handle that eh? you know th- that 's something that like uh, especially when the when both sides when things have become so divisive that neither side really shows that it feels much responsibility to take the interests or concerns of the other side into account. You know you win an election, and uh, Bush said this in his second term, and Obama said it a dozen times in both terms. He he'll be at a press conference or he you know, he did it uh, at a a private meeting with the Republicans over the health care bill where he just looks at him and he says, look, I won the election. okay? I won. And when you get to that point where it's like, look, we won, shut the fuck up, we won, you're not trying to reach consensus anymore, or at least some kind of a compromise that the other side might not like, but that they can accept under the circumstances. You're just ignoring the concerns of the other side altogether because you won. Pretty soon, both sides are playing that game, and then you've got you know you got real problems, especially if you're uh, part of a group that's now in a permanent minority, even if it's 49.9%. Yeah, that's
0: that's an interesting point you, you're making there, but uh, I'm just making notes here as I go, and about this minority thing. Yeah, we, we about government changing things. We in Latvia also have some dangerous things, which kind of. Uh, we, the Rush, local Russian minority made referendum in Latvia like a couple of years ago to make uh, Russian the second official language here. It failed, but after that, our government did a majorly stupid idea of making some or, or, or a, making an addendum to constitution, which is <clears throat> right now we have in Latvia a document which is the only document ever I know in in our history that will not and cannot be ever changed by any will of people whatsoever. There's Ah. a precedent of such a document. And a lot of nationalists, because that document states that Latvian is the only language and all sorts of things which our nationalists like... Yes. And which I would normally like, because I'm very against Putin, as as, as people might have noticed. I mean, I, I I can just be open about that too right now. I've been banned from sure. the country, whatever, man. <laughs> but th- that's a very dangerous document if you think about it, because in here it's a completely different situation. I mean, we we still have these fluctuations and part we have multiple party systems and a lot of things can change hands. So so our party kind of made a document which cannot ever be be kind of changed by the will of the people ever so and that's that's scary
1: so there's no legal mechanism whatsoever no, for
0: changing it no wow. none and the second part is that it's now a crime in Latvia to not only to deny holocaust but also be, the official the official term is any discussion about whether or not nazis or soviets both of these sides were evil like denial of stalinism crimes or nazi crimes is punishable by prison and that's that's basically thought police there and i and i'm not saying that i'm 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 not saying that you know any of these parties didn't did any good in fact no they are the two Uh, biggest in mankind but you know what i hate that there is a law that now states that we aren't even allowed to have a discussion about something yeah because yeah, you don't it, you don't win arguments by prohibiting talking about something. Uh, like my professor again, and I like to use my university professors here. Like one of them said, you don't win hate speech by yeah. prohibiting hate hate speech. You win hate speech by more speech. You have to give your own arguments. You win. Yes. That that's the thing. And and the fact is that the modern a lot of modern society they're just. We live in these thought bubbles, which also is a is a backdrop of this politicization. Because previously, if you wanted to look up global warming, you couldn't just Google it. You had to go to the library, and then you were exposed to all sorts of views about it. Right yeah. now, you can just Google exactly, for example, global warming is a myth, and you'll just get those few scientific data who say that it's a myth. Right. And and we live in these thought bubbles. We can just evade the information that we don't like. And then we get extremely aggressive that there are people who hold those op- opposite views. And I think that's wrong. I'm, I'm one of those people who go out of my way to, to, to read media. I, I buy pro-Russia propaganda newspapers every day. I read them. It's my job. Yeah. I, I, I hate what's written in there. But you have to expose yourself to the opposing views all the time. You have to apply your critical reasoning skills. You have to. And this is why I'm making this podcast. I want people to just, just slam into their heads as much controversial information, as much information that they might actually not like, but so that they can make their own decisions with their own heads and, and not just yeah. stick in this bubble. And that's, that's one of the other few things, which is kind of, I, I don't know where the causality here is. Like you said, this might be caused by this lack of trust and this disintegration of society, of, of society. but this is certainly what's happening in relation to it in one way or another. And the, other, um, and the other real thing... quick,
1: I, real quick, yeah, I just want to before I lose it in my head, um, I just read a quote uh, earlier today from Nicolas Gomez Vila, the um, Colombian writer, uh, where he said um, something like you just said, he said that once he feels comfortable that he's mastered an idea or, or a position, then from that point on, he's not interested in information that confirms it, he's comfortable in his feelings on it. He's comfortable in the way he feels about it. He's not looking for any more confirmation. Now all he does is look for things and people and conversations and books that will try to disconfirm it for him. You know, once he feels comfortable with it, now go out and challenge it and just do that because you already believe it. You already think it's right. You don't need any more confirmation. Now just go out and try to challenge yourself on it. And I think that's what you're talking about. And it's it's good advice. And, and, And literally our media environment today is built specifically to do the exact opposite thing, right? Where not only can people go out and find things on the internet that confirm what they want to hear, but every major social media site and Google right down to your Gmail and everything and you're is everything yeah. you put up and then adjusting your bubble to make sure that it's more perfect. And so that it just fits what you're, you know, what you already agree with. And so you really have to go out of your way. I mean, you really have to force yourself in a way that'll probably be uncomfortable, uh, to, to actually go out and find disconfirming information for your beliefs. It's it's more difficult today, I think, than it probably ever has been. Even though people think that today is this big orgy of sort of information freedom in many, many ways, instead of, uh, you know, having sort of forced state kind of information control and propaganda we've got this kind of do-it-yourself totalitarianism right where we kind of build our own little prisons out of this stuff. so anyway sorry about that
0: no it's okay there's a name for this it's called panopticon and mr foucault who was a very left-wing person by the way it's kind of interesting that you look at uh, i look at all these philosophers and this is basically hegel's dialectics this is thesis anti-thesis synthesis this is how you create new information you compare to opposing views you make the best of them. Yes. This is how you, this is how theory of knowledge and philosophy creates stuff. And Foucault, which is by the way a very left left leaning philosopher, he's with Sartre <laughs> and other post structuralists from France. He experimented with everything in his life, and he was very much a socialist in his political leanings. But he hated the state a lot, and he wrote in his uh, he wrote about this prison Panoptic, panopticon, and he criticized how society is built that we no longer are being watched from outside, like the NSA is doing. Uh, but we are st- we we are basically a society who is now watching each other about yes. any wrongness or any any disagreements there. And, you know, and that's kind of interesting because. I just I, I look at this from, from, from sidelines because I am sort of in the West, but only kind of. Like, I am on the eastern border. I, I live right. in the very, very east and, and this eastern Europe. And you know what? A lot of people kind of criticize us about also the refugees and everything and call us weird and racist. And sometimes we are, weirdly. I mean, Latvian government banned niqabs, those face veils for, for Muslim women, right? Yes. It affected exactly three people in Latvia. Three women, okay? Three Two of them which lived in the countryside were native Latvians and just did everything except they were just Muslim. We had yeah. three people wearing yeah. this, which is just silly. But a lot of this in Eastern Europe where, where we got deemed weirdly racist comes actually from the collapse of the Soviet Union. I read an sure. article which basically said that after Czechs got their independence, and this is an article about some people, you know, uh, the first trains from the Eastern Bloc to the West, right we are Czechs Latins, and Poles and we're boarding these trains and we uh, we're wearing our black market levis and we're happy about the fact that yes we're 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 going to have this freedom now. And you know we get on this train there, and we're so happy we finally have this freedom, and 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 we 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 travel to West Germany or or some other place like Austria. And the first thing you see is a poster saying, "Oh, you go you go steal things at your, your own home, thieves," or a poster saying, "Oh, no, we we don't serve Czechs here." Wow. Yeah.
1: And at that, Welcome and at,
0: to Europe. And at that time, and at that time, and this still continues today. I mean, right after Brexit. A lot of Poles, Polish people were beaten up in Great Britain. And yes. like I mentioned before in this conversation on Latvian news, because we have a lot of Latvians in Ireland and UK, because a lot of them migrated for the economical reasons I, I mentioned before, which have to be solved and we want them back. But in the news recently, two days ago, there was a story about a woman, a Latvian woman, who was just, uh, who was just kind of moved to UK and she went to the hospital. And the, and the UK hasn't left EU they won't leave for another two years at least, okay? But she went to the hospital and she was just basically told to fuck off and go, go cure yourself in her home country. And you know what? She had cancer. Like, they literally throw us Eastern Europeans out for being scum and everything. And then they call us racist for... for I mean, the idea sure, about refugees yeah. is that, that, you know, the same people who don't like us, who think that we steal cars... And we are terrible, terrible evil assholes for the, you know what? These people are trying to dictate to us that we should take in some other people and kind of, you know, do things as they want at the same time they they look down on us.
1: Yes. The, the, yeah, the, of course. I mean, and and knows, and, and at the same it.
0: time, at the same time, people from America and the internet, because this concerns me, because I'm one of the few active Latvians and Eastern Europeans on the American internets, actually. I am probably the most known Latvian on the American internet by this point. But, uh, you know if what? If
1: not, we'll get you there.
0: <laughs> I hope so, yeah. But uh, I, I am the lead lead podcaster from all Baltics. Because uh, I know one other podcast and they're just they're, they're podcasting about geek stuff, but they're only in, in Baltics anyways. But the idea is that a lot of people, and like you said about this, you know, hate, hate speech, you know, your racist calls... Yeah, they call me racist. They, they say yeah. that I have white privilege and I'm just asking them in comparison to what? Okay, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm white. At least you you think I'm white, but but ask ask your average Brexit voter. Yeah. Your average Brexit voter thinks that I'm a scum who wants to steal his car. And, yeah. And, and what white privilege? Uh, I, I don't have any real non-white minorities in Latvia. I have, like, one... One black friend, one who whose half whose dad was from Somalia and his mom was Latvian, and he has never seen his dad, and he he kind of hates black people because he has never seen his dad in his life.
1: Right. And- yeah, that's a weird one that you encounter over here all the time. Is you find, and this is really it. It, it deals a blow to all the people that want to talk about genetics all day and how that's the difference. You know, that's the main uh, driver of differences in group outcomes. Is that african immigrants who come over here from nigeria and kenya they all go get masters degrees and they do fine and one of the interesting things that you find is all the time that they don't like african americans and i you always you don't know how to you know you're you're a white person in a public place talking to somebody that came over here from nigeria 5 or 6 years ago and he starts saying all these tough things about you know, born citizen African Americans, and you start to look around and get a little uncomfortable. You're like, uh, I'm not sure if this is okay. Should I run away? <laughs> and you know what? This is like I said in my Israel episode, by the way,
0: I Daryl, you, of all people, you must listen to the first episode of PDRP. I will. That, that's the exact continuation. That wraps up fear and loathing in New Jerusalem. After you're done with it, Point them After
1: here. I, uh, when I finish the last episode for it, I will I'll point yeah, to everybody. Yeah, because this wraps up everything later. But uh,
0: at the end, at the end of the day, <laughs> that episode kind of proved to me because I'm, I'm sitting on, on 4chan and all these very very weird, weird places on Tumblr because I expose myself to everything. And over yeah. there there are a bunch of people who say, oh Jews run the world. Well, how can Jews run the world if Israel? If, if just read Israeli politics, okay? Right. Read read Torah commentary everyone's just people and and the whole view of looking at certain groups this, oh,
2: this, is,
0: this is kind of this is kind of so fucked up because in one side in, in one in one way you just think about it they're they're this all of this all of this cultural cultural thing all of what's going on there in eastern europe It's just americanization you're just trying to make us american we don't like being american right, yeah. and the idea is that that's all very of, unfortunate all of these group politics, like, you know, us versus them and not understanding the other. Yeah, that could be eliminated if you could actually speak with people from that group. I mean, you can make brave statements about any group as long as you don't speak with anyone from that group, I think.
1: Um, let me see if I agree with that. Here's, here's maybe... Uh, That's my I opinion,
0: would... man. Yeah, yeah. You don't no, have I, to I... agree
1: here. We can, yeah, no, can sit just...
0: down and, you know... That's the
1: point. <laughs> I so hope this I conversation ends with, us,
0: with um... us hating each other. I would say necessary.
1: that people, people are not just people. Every person um, is a member of a community. Any any person that's not a member of a community um, ends up getting sick in one way oh, or yeah. another. Uh, I agree with that. I agree with and that. So and I, and I I don't, that
0: What big, I don't mean is broad statements about Polish people steal cars. or oh, yeah, yeah like, I, course, I, might, I meant it
1: that way, but
0: uh, I okay. agree about the community yeah, 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 part.
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that you know one of the big divides we have today... Is uh, between people who consider themselves part of a community, who have the social capital that comes with that, have who have the connections and attachments to um, certain places and certain ideas and certain traditions and certain people uh, that come with identifying yourself as a member of a community, and then you have people who uh, you know who who really defy every basic human social instinct to make it their identity and 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 their basic moral sort of uh ground to not identify as part of a group even though everybody does they their whole thing is that they don't and that anybody within their group who does do that is you know those are the people who are going to be attacked like you're being attacked by a lot of people right and you got to you know this is like I think where a lot of the anxiety that's coming from in a lot of western countries is these days is I really believe that if people were just coming into the United States from Latin America, if people were just coming into Europe from Africa and the Middle East and South Asia, and yes, they look different and they listen to different music and they even speak different languages and they eat different food and all those type of things um but they were just coming in and sort of, you know, getting jobs and getting into the civil service and joining, joining the army, whatever it is. I really don't think we would have um, most of these problems after, say, a generation, because you know the first group that comes in is always going to have some friction because there's just mutual incomprehension going on. But uh, the problem today is that Western countries, after the Second World War, made it our cardinal virtue to. Um, not think of ourselves in terms of uh, either um, you know ethnic communities or religious communities we're okay with national communities, but even that we got to be a little bit careful because that can get out of hand as we've seen you know and that kind of thing, and we start bringing people in by the millions and tens of millions because of this ideal we have, but they don't share that ideal you know they are absolutely not going to give up their sense of ethnic identity, their sense of religious identity. This, Nor should they, by the way. I wouldn't expect them to. It's inhuman to do that. It's not natural or normal. We've only been able to do it, you know, because of a massive civilizational trauma and, you know, gearing our entire educational system and sort of, you know, media output so- towards pushing like a very, you know, this certain idea. And even now that most people in our societies have adopted it, look around. I mean, everybody is on antidepressants and everybody is, uh, you know, um, whatever, alcoholic and they're just working themselves to death and they're watching TV. Nobody is happy. You go around the United States for the most part because they're not plugged into communities and they don't have any sense of that. And yet we expect, you know, people who are coming in and seeing this, who are seeing 40 million people in the United States on antidepressants and everything else, the social malaise that's going on from a complete lack of community that people have and yet we are expecting people to come in from parts of the world where they do have a strong sense of community and family and tradition, and they're supposed to give that up. Like, come join the party, guys. It's wonderful. We've got some Xanax right here for you for when you lose that sense of community. Like, it's going to be amazing. Like, why would they possibly do that? Like, you know, these people look at, at, at our countries and we say, come assimilate, and they're looking at us and they're saying, assimilate to what? Like what? Just sort of like this gray goo that you've got going on? Just kind of jump into this gooey swimming pool of people that has just has no structure as you clearly don't value yourselves. You clearly don't value your own culture. You don't value your own history, your own tradition or anything about yourselves. What are we going to assimilate to? What are you talking about? And, And we kind of lose that end of it. You know, why would they do it? What are we offering them? What exactly are we offering them that would make it compelling for them to want to give up their own traditions? Not even that they would have to give them up, but like to to even compromise them at all to assimilate to what we're doing. I wouldn't. And, and, I Z-
0: and Xanax even is possibly much ex- more expensive in America than in their countries. Even that's expensive. Yeah. Yeah. But I understand your point. All this, all this like blob mentality. It's kind of, kind of interesting. But about America specifically, I want I want to, I want to hear you comment on this yeah, one because sure. over here in Russia, like in Russian parts and Russian speaking, there, there's this term Basically, you get get pissed off because of your own fatness. That's kind of you're <laughs> just uh, that's th- that's a saying of of the people who actually have like when you invent problems because you have no real problems.
1: Right. Yeah. I get that's
0: it. that's kind of you're you're being that's being too rich of your own good, and that's applied to America and Western Europe in a lot of lot of cases when. When your average Eastern European reads about all of these weird things in the media and, and what's going on in America and what are your protests about, is I, I work. I, I work uh, right now. I, I used to work in a newspaper, but I quit that because because of asshole boss. But right now I'm still doing some investigative journalism over here, and I interview people. And they just don't understand this idea. Why? Why, why, are, why are you people so angry? You live in the goddamn America. You have normal salaries there. What's the fucking Whoa. problem, you guys?
2: Like how so amazing what is are your
1: lives that you have time to worry about that? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you guys are fighting over this. Like this is what you're fighting over. How amazing must your lives be that you have time to fight over that?
0: Exactly. <laughs> That's the general view of American and, and over here.
1: It reminds me of the Sopranos episode. Uh, there was uh, there are these two Russian <laughs> sisters and Tony Soprano is talking to one of the Russian sisters with the girl who has one leg, I think. And, uh, she says something that's stuck in my head because you know, as I've traveled around different parts of the world, it is as true as anything could be about the United States. She said that um, you know most of the world or she says in Russia she's russian, but this is, it's like this in a lot of parts of the world that um we have an understanding that life is tough and it doesn't just go your way because you want it to, and we expect that bad things are going to happen uh a lot, and when something goes well and something goes our way, we're very happy about it's that. It's
0: a nice surprise. I fully yeah. agree.
1: This is how we live here. It's, yeah, it's... You Americans, you guys expect everything to go perfectly as like a baseline reality. And anytime it doesn't, you lose your fucking minds. Like something has gone wrong because something didn't go your way. The world doesn't care about you. Like, what are you talking about? Like, go read the book of Job. God, nobody cares. Like, that. No, nobody ever promised you that anything was going to go your way. And yet, in the United States, our lives have just been, it's been one big fairy tale over here for the most part, you know? I mean, the war that we lost was this kind of distant war that we just decided to kind of leave eventually. And, you know, Vietnam, kind of over it. And so we come home. And, like, yeah, we, we just haven't had uh, you know, that kind of I mean, think think about the what the last 70 years in the United States has been like. Right. I mean, I, this is something I really like I try to get my head around sometimes that there's this massive gulf between I mean, not just people in, you know, the stretch from the Baltics down to the Black Sea, which have probably had the worst century in the history of mankind, probably. Uh, but even compared to like Western Europeans, that there's this huge gulf in understanding between Americans and, and them, I think basic like Americans on the ground is that after 1945, the United States comes in, we have 50% of the world's wealth, um, we are consuming 50% of the world's resources, we are producing 60% of the world's manufactured goods and all these things. Um, The entire planet is completely destroyed, it has to be rebuilt, and only we have the manpower, the material, and the credit, the capital, to rebuild it. Oh, by the way... We also just in the you know, last hundred years discovered this entirely new source of, of energy that is going to completely put on, you know, it's going to supercharge everything we've done now that we found a half a billion years worth of condensed stored sunlight sitting under Saudi Arabia. And we're going to start using that. And the whole rest of the world is all broken. And so they can't really use it that much yet. We're the ones that get to get to use all this new oil that we've got. And so we have this where we are literally rebuilding the entire world and all of the money is coming into us and and all of the productivity is coming into our economy. And we establish that as like our baseline for what reality is supposed to be like. And and to people today, like we are – you know, we in America right now – and people often like wonder like why are we being so belligerent towards China? Why do we care about this little island chain in the South China Sea or why are we – and, and the reason is because our society has gotten to the point where we take this once-in-a-millennium situation, right? this confluence of events that left us as the only standing power on a world that had to completely be rebuilt with our material and our capital, and we've, we've convinced ourselves that this is normal, and we have to do anything we possibly can to prevent from actually falling down from the stratosphere like that. Well, that's not going to happen. Okay, it's not, it's not normal for 5% of the world's population to consume 30% of the world's resources. That's not normal. But then you ask yourself, let's say the United States, we had to live on only 15% of the world's resources. That's still pretty good. We're still getting three times more than our share. I mean, that's a historically successful empire, right? Where you got 5% of the world's population, you're consuming 15% of the world's resources imagine what it would mean for the united states to take a 50 percent cut in our standard of living we would nuke the whole world if we thought that was going to happen Like we would have oh, don't don't
0: don't minds. talk about nuking the world you know what's one of the most scary things I, I do research on my soviet show and i came up on these war plans of the united states about who are you gonna nuke if war breaks out yeah you
2: know
0: what you nuke all of fucking latvia yeah. completely we, we're all dead uh, There are like six nuclear missiles sent to latvia oh, yeah. you'd need like one or two maybe but and you're like you know, backups, you, know yeah. you you have Liepaja, riga Daugavpils, like our major cities and like the biggest of our cities riga had about a million people back then it's less less now but I look at this and I know the population sizes and it's like you're sending an ICBM to a, to a place which has about 15,000 people living oh, there of, of whom uh, I... 90% hate the Soviet <laughs> Union. and want to join the rebellion.
1: There nope, are a couple nope. old maps from uh, the Soviet era, um, maps of showing where like some of our uh, nuclear missile targets were in the Soviet Union. Like it, like they're declassified back from the 60s. Yeah, I, I, I looked at them in Latvia just gone and... on. I was looking at one of them with uh, one of these old guys I knew that used to work at U.S. Missile Command, and he was kind of talking about some of it with me. And he, I'm pointing to these places out in Siberia. I'm like, "What the fuck is that? What is that?" And it's like a, it's like a bridge in Siberia that we nuked, just to like because we had so many nukes that you might as well just let it go at that point. And so we we're nuking a bridge. And then there's a, this other place where there's two of them in this weird place in 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 Siberia. I'm like, "What are what are those?" And it's this little tiny rail station that we did to, we did a second one at just in case the first one missed. It's like, wh- like how did we go from any place where we started to the point where this is somehow normal? Where we've got literally like the most rational, high-minded you know minds in our country who are going to university for eight years to go talk about that?
0: <laughs> you know, but this this happens every time when. Whenever the state becomes like self-obsessed, I mean, the Soviets—they had this this program before ICBMs were a thing. They were tactical bombers, as you know. Yeah. So the Soviet government spent 15 years trying to figure out. Okay, you know, we need some precision here. We need to do some tactical bombing. But you know what, if we kind of drop it, the tactical nuke, like low enough, kind of the bomber explodes. The the bomber kind of gets irradiated and, you know, all people inside die. Kind of sucks. So what do we do? So they worked for 15 to 20 years to come up with a paint which has anti-radiation properties. Uh, But the problem is the paint had to be painted on just before the plane took off it was extremely expensive and it had the, the plane had to be repainted every time you wanted to use it it had a limited oh. lifetime as soon as it dried out <laughs> and you know what? they made this paint. they they wasted manpower resources <laughs> uh, manpower resources and everything to just come up with this paint because uh, i when, when you talk about the soviet economy forget about any costs whatsoever it just doesn't right. exist sure. and and uh, The thing is, after these 15 years, a guy comes up from St. Petersburg and just writes a dissertation saying that, you know what, uh, you know, with the heights and the altitude where we're going to drop the bombs, the radiation is not going to be the issue because the bomber (laughs) is just going to explode, you know.
1: Yeah. Then they kind of drop the paint and they're like, well, fuck. (laughs) I don't know what is funnier about that, like the wastefulness and, and, you know, the ineptitude of it or the fact that... In Soviet Union, nobody gave a shit. They were doing their work. They were getting
0: premiums and filling their plans. And that's the attitude that I see forming in the Western world world right now. Because I'm actually saying on Twitter to a lot of my followers, you know what? Listen to my show. You you might you might need this one day. You you <laughs> might mean, fucking need
1: this. We're spending we're we we're, we're devising a plan where we're gonna drop a bomb that might kill a half a million people, and we're spending 20 years trying to figure out how the pilots don't have to get some radiation on them. <laughs>
0: Welcome, welcome to government. This is this is why I don't. This is why I kind of. This is why I kind of kind of you know I, I start to think when when I think about it you know when, when democracy was invented in Athens it kind of worked because Athens was a small place and everyone kind of cared and and one of these detachment things is that this is this is where my show's name comes in and I I will mention this again and again res publica the public thing okay the thing that everyone cares about. If people would actually care about what's going on and they would have this personal investment, then they would kind of be more active, I think, and then we might have a chance of better governments. This is why I think in the United States, people are much more invested in their state governments than in the federal one, I, I think, at least, because... You know, there's when, an interesting dynamic. When the state right. gets too big, your, your ability to actually care kind of drops out, and then we come to this idea of what democracy actually is is it the situation like is it the senate version or is it the house of representatives version like yes. are the your representatives supposed to represent your views or are you supposed to elect someone who cares who's smarter than you and who can make better decisions than you right. and there are defenders of both views here uh, and we we come to the nature of of how how the fuck do we solve this issue and what democracy even is and, and, and I don't know maybe Maybe the, one of the ideas that I have seen on, on and a lot of people are advocating is this online voting, which, by the way, Estonia has. Estonia is, is way forward in there. You can just vote through the internet, which would never happen in, in, in much larger yeah. countries or something. But
1: let California be a warning against that kind of direct democracy. Like we have a system out here where you can pre- put pretty much anything you want on a referendum for a public vote. It's very, very easy. The threshold is very low to get something on there. Uh, and you get exactly what you would expect. Somebody comes up with a $30 billion high-speed rail system from L.A. to San Francisco. Everybody votes for it because that would be amazing. Somebody puts up a vote to uh, increase funding to schools. Of course. Who doesn't want more funding for schools? Somebody puts up a vote to uh, you know, put an iPad in every elementary school classroom, and it's going to cost ex- – of course, who doesn't want kids to have iPads? Hey,
0: Estonia has it, and we
1: also. It's kind of yeah. normal and government pays for it. And now we have to uh, now we have to vote on raising taxes to pay for it. Oh no, 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 no. We don't want that. Oh yeah, it's, that's 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 your issue.
0: That's your issue because our it. government always starts taxes first. Uh, th- this attitude towards taxes is so different here than in th- than in this is in your place. Like it's it's one of the more insane things that I don't understand about the United States of America.
1: Well, I think it's this. I think mean, here it is. I mean, I think that you have a sense of national identity that we completely lack here now for the most part. Oh yeah, right? definitely. So it, well, that, that's a huge part of what it is. Like a lot of these people will bring up something like uh, the social welfare programs in Scandinavia or, or something as a way of relating that to the United States. But the United States is not really a country. The United States is a continent. I mean, it's closer to an empire. You know, you, you're talking about taxing Latvians to provide services for Latvians, and there's some other people there who you know you've integrated into your society to you know lesser or greater degrees, but for the most part, that's what the situation is here yeah that's, that's, know, how, that's how
0: it feels too when we pay our taxes. Sure. Where we're just doing this for our people
1: When I was in Norway uh, for a job, I was, I was doing some work for their um, Holy for their crap. You, were, you had been in Norway. Yeah. Oh. I was up in, I was up in Bergen at their shipyard doing some, uh, helping out. Well, I, I can't say exactly, but I was, um, working on a few of their Navy ships and, um, I got to spend about two weeks there, even though the, the work I was doing for them was only the first couple days. And so I would walk around and I just talked to everybody and two things I noticed, I mean, that you can't help, but notice one is that all anybody wanted to talk about, uh, from the, Pretty blonde girl who is in college at the coffee shop to the taxi driver who's fifty-two years old or whoever it was. At a certain point, if you just let them talk, immigration was coming up without a doubt. It was coming up, and everybody had extremely strong feelings about it. Um, this was five or six years ago now, and at that time, I was like, "Well, this is definitely going to be an issue very soon." The other thing that I noticed was this: is Bergen is a city that's built up there on the fjords, like about halfway up the western coast, and um, it 's kind of set down into this uh into a bowl almost, and around the place you got the sea and then around the place it's almost like this gigantic kind of almost like an amphitheater and up on the hill up on the slope down down in the bowl is where the' where, is where the city is, and up on the slope, you start to see all these really nice big houses and everything and that 's where everybody who works out on the oil rigs and works in the oil industry and stuff for Norway out in the North Sea they all live up there on the hill. And one of the things that I noticed, and this is so different from the United States, is the people who lived in the city, the young people, like, you know, it didn't matter who they were, even left wing people that I was talking to. They all admired the people that lived up on that hill because they knew that the oil industry was a huge reason that Norway has, you know, the social services it has and the social welfare and that a lot of the benefits that they enjoy in their lives came from that. From from the oil industry and from the people up on that hill, and so all the people down on the ground, they had nothing but positive things to say about the people up there. there was, I, I I detected no resentment, no sort of uh, you know sense of kind of class envy for the most part, uh, or anything like that really. And in the United States, you you couldn't you couldn't even find anything like that if you looked for a hundred years for the most part, because and, and that leads to what you're saying where. You know, the the people on that hill, they don't mind paying taxes to support universal health care for the people who live down there on the ground, who completely appreciate them and, you know, who see them, both of them and the people on the hill as kind of two parts of a vital society. Whereas here, you know, you're going to tell a Kansas uh, farmer, you know, a, a wheat farmer from Kansas that he has to pay into a system to support services for people who he can't communicate with verbally because they don't speak his language who really can't, I mean, they hate him. I mean, to a large degree, they hate what he stands for. They hate his social values. They, um, they, they have nothing in common with one another and certainly no sense of communal identity. And now you're asking those people to pay into a system where one side is, um, you know, going to be supporting the other. It's just, it's very different. I mean, I it's it's more like trying to get the European Union as a whole to go along with, um, you know, supporting the countries in the south and things like that. Trying to get Germans to go along with bailing out Greece is similar to trying to get Americans to support like a universal health care system here in the United States because they're like those are. I, let's be honest; those are not my people. They're Whoa. just not. It's kind of crazy because and that that my people think is really
0: important because one thing that you guys will be probably shocked is that our president doesn't have bodyguards with him when he walks around the street. Yeah. And he drives a trolley bus now and then to his job.
2: <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean you you go here in the United States and it is uh it's an it's an interesting sight when um you if you're in Washington, I mean, it's all it's it's sort of more stark in Washington because you're just there in the middle of the Death Star and there's government buildings and, and, you know, Roman architecture everywhere. And when the president is moving and not just the president either, actually, but, you know, the Speaker of the House, um, you know the big people. But when he's moving, you can get up on a roof somewhere and kind of look or a bridge and you see and the streets are absolutely cleared out as these as this line of police And armored black vehicles kind of make their way to wherever they're going. And then they go into that place for the meeting and then they all rush out and get into their armored vehicles and rush back to wherever they were and kind of go around like that. I mean it's a war mentality in a lot of ways. You really think about it. But
0: the idea is that the president represents the people. So why do you guard the people (laughs) from the president so much? Because it seems that way, not the other way around. And the other thing is that in the recent light – I listened to your latest episode about the the police shootings and everything – and what i have to say is that do you have an explanation why, why is why is your your country's police become an army in itself because i know only one other country where the police had tanks and it was the soviet union and the kgb and they weren't the good guys i i just yeah. i just don't understand the situation here that so I'll, I'll direct them to your show don't go into detail here but how did it
1: actually be- become this way what, yeah, what- so the- what? The proximate cause. The proximate cause is the war on drugs, right? That's the the political program or policy that you can point to, to, to that when all this really kind of kicked off. Um, you know, you the the police in the United States have always responded to um, the level of force that's being dictated by criminals, right? So police didn't used to have body armor. Um, and then during Prohibition, the gangsters started wearing body armor, and so the police started wearing body armor. They didn't used to use automatic weapons, and then Tommy guns came around and started to become you know used more frequently, and so the police you know would start to have those on hand. Yeah, and then you have that, and then you know, and never let go. Do that? Uh, of course not. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so that's going on, but they're responding you know to the level of force being dictated on the street at that point. But then the war on drugs comes, and you know things just. Well, we we won't get into the whole long thing about that, but basically like the level of militant, uh, you know, equipment and I mean, every town with 10,000 people in the United States has a has a legit paramilitary, you know, SWAT team that works for that city or that or the, even that you could say that small town. I mean, if you've got 10,000 people, you've got a SWAT team and a SWAT team, I'm here to tell you, a SWAT team is not uh, a SWAT team is no joke. That's that, that is a team that. You know, we, we do uh, we've got these little games that we run all the time here in the United States where, um, you know, maybe some channel or the services and police forces and, and stuff will set up little contests between Navy SEALs and Army Special Forces and Delta Force and SWAT teams and FBI SWAT teams where they'll go out and do shooter competitions and these different, uh, you know, CQB uh, maneuver contests and everything. And SWAT wins all the time. Like they, they beat the SEALs and everybody all the time just because they're more focused on. You know, direct close quarters battle and, and shooting and everything, but those guys are—they're they're no joke. And so, when you think about the fact that our small towns have these paramilitary teams uh, attached to them, and you get to the point where you, you wonder—it was there was a time in the history of our country where people would have thought that that was insane. They would have thought it was absolutely insane that yeah, this that, little town is—that is, is what I think. Yeah. Sorry, Ab. <laughs> And to us now, it's like, well, yeah, what, of course they have a SWAT team. What are you talking about? And, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, we keep throwing words uh, and phrases around. And, and we do this in the United States all the time, like that we we throw around without much reflection that have a lot of meaning for, I think, people in Latvia say that if you really press somebody in the United States to to tell you what they meant, they'd have a hell of a lot harder time doing it. Whereas we'll say things words like we and us and the people and the American people and all of these sort of collective terms to to refer to ourselves. And that is a very, if you ask somebody, what do you, what do you mean by we in the United States? What do you mean by the American people? What do you, what what are you really talking about? Break that down for me. People for the most part are going to have a a really hard time doing that for you. Um, And, You know, until you're able to really define who we is, who we are, um, you're just you're you're not going to have a lot of fun in a a democratic system. You're just not. I think part of that goes down to what you said about Athens. Same thing with Rome, right? Yeah. And the same thing with the United States. You've got three governments that were set up as democracies or republics that are fine when you are a city state uh, or when you are an agrarian republic. uh, You know, made out of these thirteen colonies over on the east coast. But all of a sudden, you find yourself as a regional or world empire. And with all the spoils of war that come with that, and all the, the mixed interests and prerogatives that come with that, to have um, you know, a system of government that essentially relies on people using it with good faith. It really does. I mean, it, it relies on people using it who have the capacity for shame, for example. Right? who have the capacity to um, – who, who will be deterred from, from doing certain things if it means that they're going to face sort of uh, you know, a downgrade in public esteem. And we just don't have that anymore. I mean you, know, the, you think the bankers who walked away with $200 million payouts after they destroyed their banks and, and, and burned up our economy, you think they care that we all think that they're assholes? They don't, they don't care at all. And so, because we're not their people, they don't answer to us. They're not—we're not the people who have any any capacity at all to impose shame upon them. Because shame is something that your community, you know, puts on you, and we're not their community. And so, you know, I, you run into, there's a there's a reason that you reach a certain point like this in the development of a of a democracy or republic, and people start looking for dictators. There's a reason for it. And, you know, I mean, we talk about over here all the time, people throw around the idea of how, you you know, the only way that the people in a place like Iraq can live together peacefully is, you know, with a dictator over them. Because those people just, they don't identify with one another and they're never going to get along. Well, I'll tell you what, man, we're not, you know, Iraqi, Sunni and Shia in the United States, but we do have whole swaths of our country who absolutely do not identify with one another as members of the same community. And, you know, you're, you're, you're courting trouble when when that's your situation
0: Hmm. yeah i guess i guess it's kind of interesting because oh boy second episode and we're we're already down on the identity questions then again i guess these these identity politics is what what really makes today because i think even even the phenomenon of these extremely aggressive political views is might be actually a result of this lack of community as you mentioned you know, yeah, you have to you have to identify with something, and exactly. the only thing you can identify with is your political views. Then fuck it, you're just gonna you're just gonna go for it, I suppose. Yep. yep. <laughs>
1: throw, gonna... throw the ball yeah. fall of religion in with that, and you've got a big part of that answer.
0: Yeah. Then again, again, this is this is kind of kind of weird. It's you know it's it's modern these days to look like a fucking lumberjack who doesn't doesn't even chop wood but right. but goes to gym all day long to to just uh, show him to uh, guys who actually are lumberjacks or something <laughs> crazy it, it's getting kind of weird our, our own definitions of 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 all of this is is interesting, but I don't know what should be done about this community sense in a way we we've been like shitting all over the place about all all sorts of issues. Can you hear me yeah, I got you great sorry i, I saw I saw it was maybe lag but where we're just what what's kind of the solution? And this is why, by the way, a recommendation here: a Sam Davis, Inward Empire podcast. He's got yeah. a looks. Have you heard that one?
1: Yeah, yeah, I like it. It's
0: it's 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 what it's what I think I do with Eastern border, just about the the United States. I think that's true. Yeah, and I'm I'm looking at this, and these are identity <laughs> questions because when I'm talking about the Soviet Union, Eastern Eastern border those are the things which made like our community here, which is why we think right now as we do. So he's trying to make some sense there. But I don't I don't even know how to build these communities these days because social media clearly is doing much more to tear us all apart rather than to make a whole community. And And if we're kind of not in these, if we don't have this sense of belonging, if we don't have these our people... I mean, then the only way how people can actually have power is when they, are, when they feel like they're friends to each other. But, but right now, I don't know. I, what I hate the most is money in politics, and we're just playing, in, playing right into the hands of special interest groups and, and big, big money who just want their interests go, to go on if we continue like this, I think. And that involves I mean, Western Europe and, and us still, in a way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm one of those people who everybody talks about how we get money out of democratic politics. or to, like I, As far as I'm concerned, democracy and plutocracy are the exact same thing. I don't think that there is a way to separate um, money from politics in a democratic or, or republican um, system. I just don't. I think that they're just two sides of the same coin.
0: Democracy. Yeah, of course, but you need to have a counterbalance, and you have that counterbalance if it's a res publica, not a democracy, but, you know where, where people actually care. Well, the, interesting. the
1: counterbalance is supposed to be politics, right? I mean, politics is supposed to be the counterbalance to to money, and um, politics has been devalued and delegitimized in a lot of ways. Uh, in, in the sense that, well, put it this way, actually. So, um, the our personal lives have been politicized probably more than more than ever over the last several years, but. You'll listen to people, we go back to the globalization question we were talking about a little while ago, where people will talk about, um, you know, the positive effects purely in terms of something you could read off of a spreadsheet, right? GDP gains, and it'll make us more competitive in this foreign market, and it'll make us more well positioned for the following. And when you bring up the fact that it's going to completely decimate an entire community here, they will look at you like you're talking a different speaking a different language. Like they if they can even acknowledge it, they'll kind of brush it off because they're not even sure exactly what you're talking about. And politics is supposed to represent the interests of our communities against, you know, say economic interests or factions and, and things of that nature. But we don't really have a language for that anymore. I mean, any yeah, um... anytime somebody starts to speak that way, they start to sound like a like a pre-war you know, continental traditionalist, and nobody even knows quite how to respond to that anymore. We don't have the language for it.
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting, because um, I listened to a lot of political podcasts, and Matthew Iglesias from the the Vox, he, uh, on the Weeds podcast, basically stated that the biggest, the biggest failure of, of modern day, huge political parties, and all these great, cool economists who say, no, no, trade is great, and everything is awesome, is that, you know, they, they kind of What they really need to say is that, yeah, you know, uh, your lives are going to suck, but the hipsters in Brooklyn aren't going to be my traitor. But they can't do that because they'll lose the votes. So that's just fucking everything up. But that's how it's going to go. That that is how how it has
1: been going. It's how it has been going. And and then we tell them that, yeah, well, but think of the fact that, uh, you know, even if it takes time to kind of leak through to the rest of society – You know, your kids, you, sir, who lose your job at the steel mill, your kids are going to be better off. But that's not even true. I mean, like, you know, his kids are not going to be no matter how much the economy grows, his kids are not going to benefit from him losing his job having to move to another part of the country so they lose their friends group, you know, to the fact that
2: how, their and,
1: dad is going to you know start what? drinking. What's and about their, the family
0: his, life? Yeah. How is he going to take, the, take the care whole, of the
1: kids? The whole string of consequences that come with unemployment and that kind of, you know, despair and community breakdown, his kids are not going to be better. So we're telling him that he should support a policy that is very possibly going to ruin his life. I mean, this 47 year old dude is probably not going to recover in time to adjust to some new, innovative you know information economy in time to actually affect his children's lives that his children's lives are going to be worse we're basically telling him that in the name of a principle right an abstract principle he should support a policy that is probably going to result in his grandchildren still suffering from a reduced status in our society and that is madness
2: and and, 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 the worst part the
1: fucking politicians would say that those guys are the problem yeah exactly exactly And, and and I, I mean, it, it really just, it, yeah, I, I get frustrated thinking about this stuff because you just have people who, you know, we have no um, concept, at least in the United States, and maybe this is a little different out where you live, you can tell me, but um, you, like, we don't even have the words to, to talk about this this idea, actually, which is that the community has rights, okay? And so you'll have people over here who will say, you can lay it all out for them. We can say, you know, that this particular policy is going to destroy this community. It's going to lead to all these lost jobs. It's going to uproot all these people uh, in a community that's been there for 100 years, and it's going to wipe that out and blah, blah, blah. And you'll have a lot of people. I mean, I'm not just talking about you know, anarcho-capitalist libertarian types who don't matter. I'm talking about mainstream establishment Republicans and free trade Democrats who will straight up tell you, well, yeah, but where do you get off telling me what who I can trade with or what I can do with you know my money or my business or blah, 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 blah. I have a right to do this following thing. And so individual rights are there. And the idea that the community has any rights at all, that it can can place any claims on individuals, you know, and maybe this is kind of a residue from our frontier era where we just chafe against authority. Maybe it's, you know, because we spent 50 years kind of propagandizing against the Soviet Union, that the idea that you know, the collectivism and then the community placing demands on individuals is the opposite of this, you know, sort of Randian individualism that makes the United States the great country it is. But whatever it is, we don't have the language for saying what John Kennedy said in you know 1960, which at the inauguration, ask not what you can do for your country, or uh, rather what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That would be almost inconceivable coming out of a presidential candidate's mouth today like i could not imagine a president from either party today going up there in a major speech and saying don't don't come to me asking what the country can do for you ask yourself what you can do for the country that would be inconceivable to hear today like it would just be completely inconceivable like the the country and the federal government and the state governments all the, it's just a pit trough that's what it's become today it's a big feeding trough and we're you know sort of devolving into uh, various groups and factions who are trying to get what they can while they can. People don't even make – you bring up things like uh, you know, the direction of the federal deficit. You bring up things like the precarious uh, nature of the banking system right now relative to where it was in 2006, 2007. You bring up Social Security and Medicare and whether these things are long-term sustainable. You bring up the pension funds at, at the state level and for major corporations uh, and, and, and municipalities that nobody even remotely thinks are sustainable. And you bring these things up, and it's the craziest thing. You find that everybody knows that none of this is sustainable. Everybody understands that. And nobody has any plan for how to steer it away from the cliff. Nobody has even any intention of trying to do so. Everybody right now, nobody's trying to build anything. People are trying right now to uh, – it's just asset stripping. People are trying to t- get as much as they can for them and their people and the ones that they care about before the thing hits the wall and the music stops and everybody has got to find a chair.
0: And you know what? You know what? Actually, it's going to f- – you're going to be fucked over. But I really like hipster community for this, at least in Latvia because it's hyper huge over here. But the thing is about sustainability. Yes. Clothing over here costs about the same as it costs in the United States, except our salaries are way, way, way lower than yours sure, so Alice is going to be uh, going to be a home economics teacher, and we just kind of fix her own shit and we were we were doing the hipster stuff before it was cool, like people yeah. were, were were making their own stuff, and that 's kind of the sustainable thinking, and this is what i I see like the good sides of the hipster movement, not, not purchasing apple products, nobody does that here, but Uh, The idea of fixing up old bikes to make them look cool. Fix uh, the idea of recycling. The idea of you know, do it yourself. You know, pickle, make your own pickles at home. You know, make your own clothing, whatever. I like that part. Okay. I like the idea that I can see, and and this is the good part of it. This is only the good part of it. I can see that the 20 year olds like the younger generation, the millennials. What's good about them is that. They look at the system and they see that, holy shit, it's unsustainable. What the fuck are you doing, guys? Because they're the ones who are, are going to have to solve this whole situation and they want to do it a bit differently. This is one of the few things which I see as a positive in like the generation, which is kind of a b- even a bit younger than I am, because I'm like 27 this year. But I, when Alice's generation, definitely she's 21 uh, and she's actively into this and she, she likes knitting and she likes all this stuff and and we're also very eco-friendly because of this. And I think I think I think you might you might laugh at these guys right now, but today's social justice warrior, crazy internet activist who yells there, he's kind of angry because he's like he's 20 and that's the only way how he can unleash his emotions and rage. I think when he hits about 26 and 27, he's going to start thinking about it a bit more rationally and he's going to going to maybe you know, accept his life lessons and everything and maybe try to do some things differently. I, I firmly believe that there is still some hope left for, for all the situation that it is going to get better. And it's, it's uh... going to get much worse before it gets a bit better. It, I, actually, it has to get much worse before it gets better. But I still, I still think that, you know, we, we, we can do it. I, I, doubt, I doubt that the Chinese will conquer all of us.
1: Oh, no, no. Nobody's going to get conquered. It's not yeah, about that. It's, it's um, metaphorical, you know. It's, yeah. Uh, I think that there is hope, um, following on from what you were just saying, that people will sort of appropriate values out of necessity because they have to, because their, you know, resources are more limited and they, they kind of are forced to you know, uh, say, knit their own clothes and so forth, but to make a positive value system out of that so that it actually, you know, maybe people become a little more self-sufficient and start to rely on each other in their communities a little bit more. And that can definitely happen. And I hope it does. As far as the larger problems, I just simply don't think that, and I, and I don't think that this is a failure of ours. I think that this is a feature of the system. I don't think that democracies, um, Really have the capacity to solve long time horizon problems uh, when there are constituencies um, that are benefiting from say the problem's not getting solved at least right now right i i just i mean you, you think about something right it's always this this is really where things kind of like break down and this this goes from the police brutality issue. To inequality uh, among minorities um, relative to the mainstream population to, um, you know, fixing our entitlement programs. say, when you've got somebody on one side who is completely correct in, in his insistence that, like, you know, the let's say Social Security and Medicare payments have to be cut and reformed, blah, 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 blah. Well, it's going to take him five minutes to explain that to you. And even if you're interested, it's going to be kind of boring. And you've probably got to have a certain baseline level of intelligence in familiarity with kind of the issues to even really understand what he's talking about, if at least in a way that's going to hit you emotionally so that you realize, oh, shit, like, you know, this is a problem and I need to be committed to fixing it. You're you're automatically self-selecting, uh, you know, a group of people who are not going to be anywhere close to the majority of your population who are going to who are going to be interested in hearing that message for the time it's going to take to really explain it well. And then on the other side, uh, and I'm not necessarily talking about Republican Democrat, but the other side of, say, the debate stage, you've got a person that's saying he wants to take away your grandmother's check. He wants your grandfather to die in the street. You know, he wants police to keep killing innocent black people and. Meanwhile, the other guy or gal has to sit there for five minutes and actually break out statistics and kind of, you know, explain some future project. You're just not going to win that fight. You know, you might win it in this one sort of debate right now, this time. But overall, things are going to lean in, uh, you know, in the direction of the demagogue. And I don't know if there's any way to really fix that. I really don't. Democracy does does three
0: things. Great, three things. Okay, democracy sort of, at least theoretically, prevents uh, prevents terrible terrible people from gaining too much power. It has failed at this multiple times. Uh, second thing that democracy does is it is constantly able to elect sl- uh, very very slightly above average people. It'll never elect Marcus Aurelius, which is my favorite philosopher of all times and greatest ruler of them all. Team Marcus Aurelius people, read read yes, Meditations, guys. Yes. Seriously,
2: yes, yes.
0: That's my favorite book of, of of all times. I keep it on my shelf and read it when especially I especially in
1: that. our age. I mean, Stoicism is the and Oswald Spengler wrote about this in The Decline of the West.
0: Which you which you happily sent
1: to me. Thank you. Yeah, oh, yeah. All... You're welcome. I hope you enjoy it. I mean, he wrote about this a hundred years ago in The Decline of the West. He said that in our age, um, in in the late decadent stage of our civilization um stoicism will turn out to be you know the philosophy and whatever guise it comes in will be the philosophy that kind of sustains a a lot of people just as it did in rome just as the sort of hyper rationalist kind of uh type of buddhism that arose in india at that time um did for them um it's something it's a specific kind of flavor of philosophy that comes in at a certain point when the old rules kind of break down the old communities start to break apart um the center's no longer holding and people are kind of looking around for themselves for the first time yeah because
0: stoicism is one of the one of the one of the things which at least at least for me because um, i'm also lutheran but i find these two things to be completely compatible the thing is 100 oh, yeah, percent, absolutely because 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 uh, <laughs> uh, i am all, you know being a philosophy major which is, uh, by, by the way, now I feel kind of interesting because, you know, when I started my studies, people were like laughing at me. ha ha, what are you going to do with your philosophy major? <laughs> right now, I look back at them and, you know, I'm just saying, well, I'm, I'm actually at peace right now. Because, you know what, my philosophy maybe hasn't given me a lot of money, but I feel quite okay, you know. I might tell dark jokes yeah, and everything, sure. but at least... You know, when people around my age, like when I see my old course mates running around and screaming and saying, oh, my God, no, I, I spent five years in college and now I'm doing a soul grinding job and I don't know what to do with my life. And I'm just sitting there talking with Daryl about stoa philosophy and drinking beer and I'm fine. And I don't I, I don't I don't don't really know. I'll, I'll manage you know somehow, you know, I've been. You managing. know what?
1: Actually, you're going to have to wait one second. I'm going to go grab myself a beer. One second. I'm
0: leaving this in.
1: i am back so i don't know um, this should we be left out.
0: yeah oh sure why not the, the biggest idea is kind of like this but i wanted to tell people that it. you know what we're talking about highly depressive shit right here we're talking about every possible thing that is wrong with this you know what we can't give you a solution on how to solve these things what me and daryl can give you as far as i understand is that you know what you just when when you feel really shitty about all of this and you don't know what to do, you go to your library or download on the internet because it's public domain by now. It's been public domain in a long, long while. Just get Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, which is essentially a Roman emperor, stoic, re- writing a handbook to himself. Also, the original name is more like "for myself" something uh, than Meditations or something. It, it's I think it's been reprinted as Emperor's Handbook or something. Yeah, you read that book. It, it won't fix anything, but you'll feel better.
1: Well, he, he wrote that book, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but he wrote that book not for publication. He wrote yeah. that book for himself, for himself right? Yeah. And well, that's very diary. important. I mean, anybody who hasn't read that book, um, and it's up there for me too, it's an amazing book. And, and he's it's an very tiny, guy. it's not big. But if you think about the fact, th- you know, this is something that it's kind of emblematic uh, of some of the some of the problems we probably have in our society today right we have an opportunity to read the private thoughts not meant for publication the private thoughts private journal of maybe the greatest ruler in human history you know marcus aurelius of the roman empire and most people could not remotely be bothered to even read a page of it and like i don't care who you are like how is that not interesting to you it's not remotely interesting to see what this person was thinking two thousand years ago, and then you pick it up and you realize that it's all just like Seneca. You know, you can just change the names, you know, and 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 you could transplant it, and it could be some a diary written today, or or, or letters of a stoic could be written between two friends yeah. today, and you wouldn't even recognize it. Because it's it's
0: completely completely interesting because it's like those are the deep personal thoughts of the most powerful man on the planet earth at that time. And he's reminding himself every day that he should, you know, that everything's going to suck and that he should not worry about things and that he should, you know, be wise and keep onto his spot and everything.
1: In, There's a lot in, of quotes, in, but all but... through the, all through the human ages, you know, people face uh, these, these questions and they come to very similar, very simple answers that once you kind of get them in your head, you realize that you don't need a Roman emperor or a philosopher to think about these things but because they're very simple and any working person should be able to think of it. The basis of Marcus Aurelius's thought is that any idea that we know what's going to happen in our life or what's going to happen tomorrow or to our country, whatever – that is all an illusion you're making that up you have no idea what's going to happen you're you're running on so little information even if you're an educated person that you can't possibly even imagine how ignorant you are and so given that uncertainty carry yourself with dignity and live your live your life with integrity look after the people who are close to you take care of your community and because any type of certainty you think you have about what's going to happen tomorrow—that's all bullshit. Yeah. You don't know anything. You know nothing about what's going to happen tomorrow. The so only control that you have,
0: about. the only control that you have is on yourself, on your own actions. And exactly. That's the, that's the exactly. only good that you can make in the world. So yes. do your best with yourself, with what you can do. And that is the one thing which I—and he always also knows that he tends to fail at this sometimes, because we all worry about things, but. The main idea is just, you know, and also this, this comes from a, a person who read Marcus Aurelius a lot and commented on him, St. Augustine, a uh, further commentator. And he basically said, you know, one of his sayings, which also kind of falls in line with this is, God, give me the strength to change the things that I can and, the wi- and, and not worry about things that I can't and the wisdom to differentiate between the two.
2: Yeah, sure.
0: Because, you know, we can, we can talk about all of this, but should we really worry on, on this? I don't know. I'm more worried about getting married with Alice and how am I gonna do that and how am I gonna raise my children and oh boy, I, I, I'm gonna give them like the best best care I possibly can. That's what I should worry about.
1: Not I mean, that's what kind of that's 100% correct. It. And it, and it plays into something you said earlier. You mentioned earlier that you think in the U.S., um, local politics are more important than national. I think so. Politics. Yeah, because I think that people could kind of care more about them. Yeah. Well, and so here's what's interesting about it is that emotionally that's not true at all right people get way more emotional about national politics and there's a great deal of emotional apathy when it comes to local politics you'll have people who can tell you all 17 candidates this year in the republican primary who can't tell you a single person on their city council um but um and i'll preface this by saying that i think that the only answer. In the United States, at least. Um, the only answer to any of this, whether politically or socially or anything like that, is just forget the national picture. Like vote when they tell you to vote and pick who you think is best or whatever. But that is, stop worrying so much about that. Know every member of your city council, know who your mayor is, know what their positions are, start going to city council meetings. If you don't live in LA or New York or Chicago or something like that, you can go to your city council and have your voice heard. Uh, you can you can go stand before them and you will be heard. You know, if you live in a town that, you know, maybe only has even a couple hundred thousand people, you can go and you can go grab one of your city council people and have lunch with that person and talk to them if you ask them. They will do it most of the time. And most people don't really understand that. And that's something that affects your life a hundred thousand times more than anything that the president says. But anyway, so the, the point I was also, going Also, is...
0: one, one other thing which I would recommend to American listeners, and this comes from personal experience and for every listener. You know what? Buy your fucking local newspaper. Because really, yeah. I used to work in one. We are the guys who always go to the local town council because national details, you know, they're covered by the big newspapers. But you know what? If you live in a small town or, or a city, you kind of want those roads fixed and you want everything running smoothly.
2: Yes. And as a local
0: know. journalist I was the kind of the the guy who had to go everywhere and poke those people. So yep. your local newspaper actually matters cuz if they care about their job and they want to sell some newspapers you know what you can also just write to your local newspaper I I can assure you that if the people working there are if they even dare to call themselves journalists, they'll be more than interested to go and actually say to the big guys up there, hey, look, our listener wrote uh, or a reader wrote this to us. What, what's your response? Do something about it. Because you know yes. what? That's the most <coughs> interesting part of writing for a local newspaper. They're enthusiastic yep. about things.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think another
0: way how to do things. I, I think that's a valid recommendation. I hope you don't mind.
1: Uh, it's a, no, it's a perfect recommendation. I was actually um, I was at work a couple months ago, and one of the older ladies that works for me um, in the office, I work for the Department of Defense here in the U.S., and um, I work in an office, and there's all different kinds of people, and and, uh, it was after some, I don't know, something, ISIS did something cartoonishly evil or something like that, and people were talking about it in the office, and one of the women that works for me, uh, you know, in her 50s or so, she's kind of, people are talking about it, she's like, I don't really, I don't want to hear about that kind of stuff, I don't really like to think about it. And a couple of the people in the office, they weren't being rude to her, but they were kind of trying to explain to her why this stuff is very important and you should keep up with, you know, these world events and blah, 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 blah. And obviously I keep up with all those world events, but I don't make any pretensions about it being important that I do it. I do it because it's interesting to me. And so I kind of stepped in and backed her up because she was sick a couple months before that. And um, a couple of us got her some chicken soup and whatever else. And I made the delivery. And when I went over there, the local paper had been delivered to her front door. And so I walked over and I was like, Susan, you you get the local paper delivered to your house every day, right? Yeah. Well, you read it, right? How many of you other guys get the local paper delivered and actually read it? And none of them did. And I said, Susan, you, uh, the other night you were talking to us about how you had a church event after work, right? Right. What'd you guys do? And she kind of explained and went around blah, 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 whatever. And I start bringing up all these other things. I'm like, what does, what does iraq and syria what does that really have to do with any of your lives watch it and be up on it and be interested in it because it's tremendously interesting and you know and all that but susan is involved with her community in all of these following ways she spends her time and energy worrying about that 20 square mile you know radius around her home about her family about her friends about the people that she works with She's actually doing good things that are affecting human beings. You guys are sitting around masturbating about ISIS, and it's cool. I'm interested in it too. But don't don't fool yourselves into thinking that this is important. It's not. What you're talking about here is not important. My,
0: my, and, this, this reminds me of my, my greatest achievement as a journalist is not making this podcast. My greatest achievement as a journalist is that – I spent two weeks going every day to my local fucking mayor and digging through documents and poking things just to get one single kid's playground renovated and fixed because it was vandalized, and they did it.
1: And yeah, that... and you can make that happen. You really can, you know? And and that's how you're going to improve any of our communities. Is we've got... Look, the problem is not that we've got this federal government doing it. The federal government is what steps in after our civic institutions and civil society decays underneath it, okay? Because there are certain things that have to be dealt with, and churches used to deal with them, and families used to deal with them, and you used to have whatever, uh, bowling leagues and Elks clubs and uh, PTA organizations, and you don't have any of that anymore. Nobody is really is really interested in those things anymore, and that is the only way— that we're going to start to rebuild any sense of community in our country. I mean, it's the only way that we're going to, if you want to put it in these terms, save our countries, right? Because you, there, there's a, there's a uh, professor out in, I think he's at NYU now, he used to be in Virginia, named John Hyatt. He writes about moral philosophy and moral psychology, rather. He's a sociologist. And he talks about how in the United States, at least, um, there's this interesting phenomenon. Well, you, you will have a district or a state um, that has voted for Democrats on the national level for the last 50 years, but at the local level, it's Democrat, Republican, 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 Democrat, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. And it kind of goes back and forth, whatever. And the reason is that when people are voting on local politics, they're listening to what the person is saying, and they're you know kind of trying to decide, okay, he think he's going to fix my potholes. This other person's going to spend some money improving the local school, and blah blah blah, whatever it is. Uh, at the national level, none of that really has any impact for the most part on our lives at all. There's certain things they can do that might annoy us or piss us off or make us kind of generally happy. But for the most part, it's very distant, and we treat it much more like religion than we do local politics. Local politics is just politics. National politics to us is like religion, and being a Republican or a Democrat is becoming like being a Sunni or a Shia in Iraq, You know, and, and what, what I mean by that is is it's just no longer about the issues. It is just about identity. It is purely a... The polit, national politics is becoming purely a question of what side are you on.
0: And and that also means that you literally can't have a discussion in any level of national oh, politics. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because because you can only have a civilized discussion if you listen to the other side's arguments, if you're ready to you know, actually change your mind with something, if you're ready to seek compromise and, and try to discuss things. As soon... as And I always say this, any fanaticism is evil in any form whatsoever because if you stop and if you stop listening to the arguments of the other side you're a fanatic yeah anything in (laughs) excess becomes its opposite right completely i mean look at look at uh, and look at the nazis in the soviet union seriously they are actually so similar and they are on the opposite scales of like, I don't know, maybe you are taught in America that, that the, the ideology the ideology is like a line, but that's wrong. It's more like a horseshoe. And the further you yes. go to the right or to the left, the closer you go to the each end. Yeah, that's good. I like that image. That's good. That's, yeah, how I mean, we,
1: that, that's how we're taught here. It's a
0: horseshoe. It's not a line.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, uh well, I don't We've talked a lot about general principles and stuff. I don't know if you want to talk about anything specific or I could keep going on this. Uh, wait, wait. I just,
0: I just – I want to – I kind of want to – we can we can go on. Man, PDRP has no time <laughs> limit. It's one. But I kind of want to tie in this uh, kind of about the Brexit thing. And now we come back to this because in my eyes, what we have been talking about, Brexit is a direct result of all of this. Brexit is – People voting against the distanced establishment who have been lying to them. Brexit is a result of all of this situation where people wanted to do something and they had this chance. And they did. And now they don't know what to do with it. And for one part, over here, it might screw them over and shoot them in the foot. Because London is still a banking center and that's only because uh, UK banks are allowed to like freely...
1: Interact with all of Europe, and they might lose this. So yeah, they, not they're not going to lose that, by the way. Nobody in, nobody that lives in London is going to move to Frankfurt. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> oh yeah,
0: but we in continental Europe are really lobbying for that to happen because that would benefit us so
1: much. Where would even remotely think of taking London's place, though? Paris. Paris. It would take a generation to make Paris rival London as a financial center. to oh, yeah. I don't want to. But, they're, draw. but they're, it.
0: They're, they're trying hard. <laughs>
1: The idea, okay, that's 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 the, idea is,
0: the idea is that I don't, I don't really care about how economically it's going to turn out for them. Like you said, I am proud of these people doing something there, and I hope it works the best for them.
1: Yeah, and I hope they learn. And the sure. most
0: important thing is whatever happens, I hope they learn something from it. I, I wish we, we heard more something. of
1: that. I wish we heard more of that. There are a lot of people in the U.S. who, I mean, around the world. Honestly, I think there are a lot of people like this in Britain. Who, um, see that. And if you're in favor of sort of integration and, and the EU, there are a lot of people looking at Britain and hoping that they go into a depression. And I'm like, what kind of sick people are you? Or, or you know, if you're a, a Brexit type supporter in the United States, they look and they're like, I hope this is the straw that breaks the camel's back that causes the EU to collapse. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Like, we're not talking about abstract principles here. We're talking about human beings. Like, what are you talking about? But that's the tendency of everyone. See, and that's another theory that, that
0: I have been taught, and that Pyatigorsky says. says. Because I love Piat You have to read that guy. I, he's I a Russian I philosopher, and he, he, has a, he he's passed away. But he basically wrote a book how revolution starts about total politization of societies. And that's exactly what's happening all over, all over the world. He basically analyzes all the revolutions and sees the tendencies it 's actually lectures on political philosophy and he just talks on this but what what he says is that you the human when when, poli, when everything becomes politics, other people also become politics, and then wow. you forget that they 're human beings right and sure. then, then you kind of then you kind of think, oh, oh he votes democrat or or, or he votes republican um, he he's a see people are not Democrats or Republicans or whatever people are Guys with political views, okay, that's, that's the idea, or gals or whatever, they're human well, beings. Well, that's true views. in a healthy
1: society though, right? I mean like in the United States, you can look at it and say, hey, guys, 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 we're not Democrats or Republicans. We're just human beings or we're just Americans or whatever, but if you go to um, Russia in 1920 – then no, 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 no. We are whites and you are reds. That is definitely something. Oh, yeah.
0: That's what's happened a- there. It ha- there's right. a precedent. Don't let that
1: happen. in the Exactly. So you get to this point where like in a healthy society, these differences are, you know, what it comes down to, again, is identity, right? Do your po- political views, is that, is that a part of your sense of identity? If it is, then yeah, we're in real trouble. We're in real trouble because identity by definition you know, it, identity is tied into the to the idea of the sacred, right? It's by definition the thing that you are willing to kill and die for. I mean, there's no—I mentioned this in one of my podcasts. There's no country on the planet. If uh, I don't know what the country with the smallest population in the world is, but if you took, uh, you know, whatever,
2: Vatican, if you took
0: Vatican City, if but if that's not, took, not that's not quite a nation state, really.
1: Yeah, let, let's take like uh, Luxembourg, right? Um, if you take Luxembourg. And Luxembourg knows that it is in, uh, if, if, if they are facing a choice between being overrun and all of them, genocide being committed against them, their state being destroyed, their government being wiped out, and their people all being killed, or nuke the whole world, every country on the planet will launch the nukes, right? Because the idea that your people should be overrun and eliminated. The, you know, most people have the idea that what is the point of having a world if we don't get to exist in it? And, and that's when you get down to questions of identity. Uh, people will fight on that hill, and they will die on that hill. And um, when you deprive people of other uh, uh, of, of any other basis for, um, you know, collecting together into identity groups, or if they lose Sort of the, if, they, if they lose focus and lose their confidence in the identity projects that you've had going for them before. I mean I, anybody that's listening to my podcast, I'm sure there's some overlap here and I know you have. Um, one of my episodes, I started out talking about this and how you know we have this Rousseauian idea of, that, of the noble savage that everything was sort of peaceful, primitive communism until civilization came around and corrupted the whole thing and kind of turned people against each other and made us mean and competitive and blah, blah, blah and all these things. Um, the problem is Rousseau was such a goddamn hypocrite. He's a complete hypocrite. No, abandoned he all, he's a piece of shit. He's a bad guy.
0: His, <laughs> his, he he wrote about raising kids and his own his he, all of he his, own five his kids, own. kids,
1: yeah, went
0: into orphanage.
1: Like And so you 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 know, you um Oh, so, so people take the peaceful uh, sort of civil society that we've had in European civilization, the Anglosphere, for a very brief period of time. And somehow, despite all of the evidence of human history, somehow we've convinced ourselves that this is like the baseline reality of how the world works. And that is complete madness. Okay, like, you know, this thing that we've got going here in the United States where I can walk down the street in my Jewish neighborhood uh, and go to a restaurant right now and look to my left and see a gay couple and look to my right and see a transgender person and look behind me and see a black dude with a white girl. And over here, it's a table full of women talking freely and, and wearing what they want. And over here, it's a Hispanic and a white dude who are friends. Who are... That is insane that that, that that exists, if you look at world history. Like, that is something that is completely insane in terms of the way humans have generally interacted with each other. And yet we take it as normal. And so because we take it as normal, we don't, we, we don't feel any need to preserve this. We don't look at this and say, OK, look. Uh, What normally happens if you look throughout world history, when you smush this many people who are, you know, this different from one another together into the same place, is that they all start murdering each other. That's what's normal. And so we need to be very, very cognizant of the fact that we've achieved this sort of, you know, this moment in history that's like a snail crawling along the edge of a razor blade, somehow not being harmed by it. Right. And, And that the slightest twitch and that snail is just going to get cut in half and slide down the two sides of that razor blade. We don't we don't treasure it at all. We just take it completely for granted. Like Donald Rumsfeld saying we're going to be welcomed with flowers in the streets when we go into Iraq. I totally think that he believed that. I don't think he was bullshitting us. Do you know, do you, do you know who
0: also it? was welcomed with, flow, with open arms and flowers in the streets when they came into our country? The Nazis. Nazis, sure, yeah. Because because they liberated us from the Soviet Union, and I don't mean but, and I don't mean liberated uh, in the bad sense. I mean that they literally stopped the Soviets because they came here fir, yes. her first. So sure. uh, being welcomed and, and they they then they started their own killings and their own terror. And I'm not saying they were the good guys, but you know what? It's extremely easy to be welcomed with open arms in another country, even if your motives are very 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 yes. ulterior and terrible.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, the, the we, what I mean by when I say that we have to nurture this thing and really be cognizant of how fragile it is, what is it? What am I talking about? I'm talking about an identity project, okay? So what's, what's normal for any mammal? What's normal for any mammal is to prefer your own kin, right? Um, just to selective altruism toward those who are closer to you in the genetic pool. That's what's normal for mammals. We look after our own clan, our own tribe. Uh, And to get people to go beyond that and to care, you know, somebody could be a first generation, you know, put it like this. Here's here's a good way to put it. Um, I have a lot of um, Muslim Arab friends here in Southern California. I'm pretty well integrated into that community. Got a lot of people I I hang out with. Muslim dudes are the only people on the planet who – guys on the planet that you can take out who don't drink at all and they're still more fun to party with than like anybody else you know. But so I know a lot of these a lot of these folks and um there's something that you that you notice and we we've had this conversation me and a lot of my my friends um after San Bernardino after the Orlando shooting in the Pulse nightclub where uh we talk about what I bring up to them for example is the Japanese during World War II right so the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor and Japanese Americans. We scoop up Japanese American citizens. We pull them out of their houses. We confiscate their property. We put them in concentration camps. And don't let anybody fool you. We did not put these people in hotels. Okay. We put these people in, in filthy concentration camps. Um, most people don't know. We brought um we brought thousands of German prisoners of war over to the United States, down into Tennessee and other different camps that we put up in the South for prisoners of war down there. And, um, they're kind of famous for how well they were treated and how nice the camps were. We brought in musical instruments and like one town in Tennessee, uh, the, the German POW camp ended up forming up a symphony orchestra and they would do shows for the people in the town. And, uh, the people in the town, we actually let some of the German POWs out to do work on some of the farms and stuff. And some of the German POWs fell in love with girls from the town and ended up getting married and staying here and that kind of thing. Right. Um, and contrast that, by the way, to the way the Germans were treating their prisoners on the Eastern Front. Uh, but but you know what? It, con- it was the
0: worst part with the prisoners on the Eastern Front, which I'm going to talk about. You should have kept all of them because if you, were a, if you were a Soviet POW and then you went back to the Soviet Union to gulag with you because you were a traitor
1: instantly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Instantly.
0: But, but you, the uh, Japanese
1: people, what's with those? Finish, finish yeah, and up. so and so the Japanese, you don't have to compare the way German POWs were treated here in the U.S. to the way the Germans were treating people. Treat the way, uh, compare the way German POWs in the United States, and I mean on U.S. soil, were treated compared to the way we were treating Japanese American citizens in the camps that we put them in when we interned them. It, you can't even compare the two. We treated the German POWs infinitely better. Their conditions were infinitely better, and and I, I, I so I start this conversation with my Arab friends and Arab Muslim friends, and um, I, I start talking about this, and I say the Japanese, by the way, had never done a San Bernardino, they had never done an Orlando nightclub shooting, they had never done a nine eleven. They did nothing. There was not a single act of sabotage. There was not a single act of spying for the Japanese. Nothing. We just did it purely as a precautionary measure because of their ethnicity. We picked them up and put them in these places. And how did they respond to that? Did they did did they did they bitch about it? Did they uh, try to, you know, go to international or I mean, what we did was absolutely wrong. That was a crime and, and a disgrace because these were American citizens that we did this to. And you know what the Japanese did? They told their sons, get up off your ass, go join the army, go kill some fucking Germans and don't come back without medals. You know, one of my uh, one of my guys I listen to a lot, Brian Suits, talks about these. He's a radio host down here in L.A. But he says, join the fucking American army, go to Europe, kill Germans and do not come back without a medal. And then the 442nd Regiment of Japanese soldiers in Europe was the most decorated unit in the U.S. Army during that war. And guess what? After the war? Japanese are just Americans. We trust. We hundred percent trust you now. You are a hundred percent part of the plan. We don't even think of you as Japanese. You're just Americans. The same thing happened with Italians, Germans, and Irish during the First World War. We weren't so show, you know you had all these uh, Teddy Roosevelt talks about hyphenated Americans and people being disloyal and you know and so forth because the Irish didn't like the British and so that kind of put them on the other side, maybe of the Central Powers and German Americans were very strong populations all up through the Midwest, all the way to Minnesota, and we didn't quite trust them, and or they wanted to keep us out of the war because they still are loyal to their homelands. Well, we got into the war, and Germans, Italians, well, Italians were the Second World War, but Germans and Irish joined the army in massive numbers and went over there and fought their asses off, and they came back, and, you know, the Irish are the best example because they had been discriminated against in this country ever since they started coming in heavy numbers in the 1850s and 60s, and after the First World War, now you're just Americans. Now you're OK. You're good. You're on the team. And I talk to some of my Arab friends about this stuff now in the, in, in the contrast with the way they respond whenever a bunch of Americans get killed by some you know, Muslim terrorist. And you couldn't draw a starker contrast to it. And what I tell them, I say, look, stop bitching to me about you know, a possible backlash from American citizens who are worried that they're going to get shot the next time they go to a bar. All right. I don't want to hear it. And and yes, there are Islamophobic people out there, whatever word you want to use. Yes, they exist. Just you need to stop talking about it. You need to tell your sons and daughters to go serve their country and prove to us that you are Americans. And you can say, look, I shouldn't have to prove it. I don't give a shit. I, I don't care what you should have to do. This is what the reality of the situation is. Okay, this is what the reality of the situation is. And when, you know, I I, I know a ton of uh, like Muslim Americans down here in Southern California who are involved heavily with local governments and state politics, who are members of the Democratic uh, uh, State Convention and things like that. And they get kind of annoyed if you call them Americans. Like, and I I mean that literally, like they'll say like, uh, you know, I'll be around some of them and I'll kind of troll them sometimes when somebody will ask them like uh, something that goes to like, you know, where they're from or whatever. And they'll say, oh, I'm. Palestinian. I'm this, I'm that. And I'll troll them. I'll say, well, you're American, right? You were born in LA. And they'll be like, stop it. Like They don't like it. And I'm like, well, like, what? Do, what do you expect people to think? Like, what is it, what faith are, is somebody in the United States supposed to have that you care about, you know, the national interest at all? I mean, this is something that, you know, here in the U S the alt-right, and a lot of white nationalists and other people who don't like Jews, they play on this all the time. And, you know, we're not anywhere close to the point where anybody can talk about that stuff openly, obviously. And, you know, and I'll be the first one to admit that a lot of the people who do talk about it are not talking about it for, for good reasons. And that they're unsavory characters uh, and, and kind of have their own personal reasons for talking about it. But when you will openly tell me that you will privilege the interests of Israel or of whatever country it is that you are sort of, You know, interested in it. You you openly tell me that when you vote in U.S. elections, you are privileging the interests of these other people, this other country over the interests of the United States. I mean, that makes me think I completely understand where the desire for dictatorship comes from, you know, because when you lose that sense of trust that the other people who are voting on the same policies you're voting on, that they have everybody's best interests at heart and that they would, in fact, sacrifice the national interest for something that has nothing to do with our elections or our national you know, identity, you're going to run into serious problems there. And, and so when you, you know, when you have multicultural programs or immigration policies or whatever, which are fine, by the way, they're, they, they're fine, but when you do it in a way that doesn't place any pressure on incoming people to assimilate to your own society politically, socially, economically – And it's just as far as national identity goes, you know, you're going to run into real problems and people want to make it, you know, make it out as if uh, talking about dual loyalties or disloyalty or whether or not like, like that's some kind of racist thing to say. I have countless people who will tell you directly that their loyalties don't, you know, aren't primarily with the United States. They will just tell you that. I mean, we can watch a Donald Trump rally where uh, – Well, the, I, can, Latino... I, can, I
0: can tell you that my, loyal, my loyalty isn't primarily with the United States, Daryl.
2: And you're not and voting I'm my – fucking rights, justified so. <laughs> on this. <laughs> of course. Of wait, course. Wait, I'll, I'll,
0: I'll power myself a glass of water here. I run out of beer. Be, be right up. back in a second. But this is a great, great point. Please, please keep doing this. This is yeah. what I wanted to do. I'll, show.
1: I'll, I'll keep going. I'll keep going while Chris Apps is getting his water. So, um, you know, when we watch a, a Donald Trump rally in San Jose and a bunch of women and children being chased down the street and attacked by Latino thugs who are flying foreign flags and burning American flags, I think I, I think what's driving a lot of people uh, into the arms of somebody like Donald Trump today is not that that happens, right? Because you can accept the fact that there are other people out there who have a different social identity who are going to maybe whatever that happens. And you deal with that the way you deal with it. But people find themselves living in a society where if they condemn that activity too strongly, then they will come under attack. Or if you look at that activity and start to ask questions about the loyalty of these people to the United States or the, the, the uh, suitability for these people. I kind of didn't mean the, go on without
0: me, but, but
1: okay. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> we, we, got you. we got you. It's all good. Um, you, you, that, that you will be attacked for asking these, these, these perfectly obvious questions. I mean, these are questions that you don't even have to think up. They, they impose themselves on you when you see things like this to, to start asking these questions. And yet if you ask them, you will be attacked. I mean, you could become a national media story, or you could go viral on Twitter and start having your employer get nasty phone calls. I mean, there's a girl that follows me on Twitter. This is a normal young girl. She's in her early 20s. She's a normal person with like a thousand Twitter followers or something like that, who uh didn't even use a curse word, was not, I mean, this was not like some crazy ad hominem attack. She just uh criticized that. Black Lives Matter guy, D-Ray, way, By the way, by the way, uh, about Black Lives Matter, the
0: news just then it's now officially a terrorist organization in Russia. Well, Putin declared all Black Lives Matter terrorists.
1: <laughs> I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know if that's got, they got a major presence in Moscow, but that's interesting. Um, and, and she made a pretty banal... Um, you know comment about him it was it was not offensive in really any way, and for the last three days, her parents have been getting death and rape threats from random people over the phone because somebody outed her and they got their parents phone number, looked it up, and now they 've been getting all these threats and You know the truth of the matter is that we all know that that will never make become a news story. Nobody gives a shit, nobody cares i mean like if something even if something happened, if somebody went into their parents house and something happened. I'd make a, It'd be a story for a day. It would be a story for one day that this girl, this this innocent girl, criticized a perfectly legitimate criticism of you know a leader of a movement. Um, and that if something happened, if her if her, her parents got hurt or killed, it would get in the paper for a day, and you know, But but nobody would really care. It wouldn't get one tenth of the attention of an actual criminal with a with a twenty year long violent record. Being killed in a, in, a, in a scuffle in a real altercation with the police when he had a handgun, like we're seeing in Baton Rouge right now, like you can look at that and you can say that the police maybe were unprofessional or that they shouldn't have gotten to that situation if they didn't have the capacity to handle this guy, you know, with with just their hands. Fine, whatever, that's fine. But at the end of the day, this was just a scumbag who, if, if those two cops didn't kill him. He, it's not like this guy was going to die of natural causes in his hospital bed 50 years from now. I mean, that was never going to happen. And now his number came up, and I'm supposed to care about that more than I care about some innocent girl's parents getting rape and death threats over the phone for three days. I don't care more about him. I don't.
0: And here I kind of kind of say one thing to you, by the way, and you will totally disagree with me on this. I do believe you fucking need more fucking gun control. But then again, or maybe you don't because – In America, you have so many guns that gun control would just not work. What are you gonna do? Go to people's homes and take the guns away from them, or something?
2: Yeah. I I don't Um, know.
0: I don't know. Maybe they have done that. They they did. They did repurchase in Australia, and that worked.
1: You couldn't do it here.
0: But Um, but but then again, you know, in, in Latvia, it's way more insanely difficult to obtain a gun. You have to first you have to go to training so that you would know, and the training to also give first aid. Just in case. Because, you know, yes. if you buy a gun for self-defense, if you shoot someone, you're supposed to give them first aid so that they don't die.
1: You know, look, I mean... And, and you have to have, to have this champions. training
0: and everything. And we have, like... And of course, there are illegal guns around, but the guns are just... Because in Soviet era, you just couldn't have them. Now, now, you, now they're heavily licensed, and you can obtain a handgun or a shotgun, and uh, no automatic weapons allowed whatsoever and unless Look,
1: we don't have we don't have a gun violence problem in the united states we've got um and this is going to sound bad and I, I, just, don't quite... I just
0: i just think you have too much guns in hands of everyone
1: that's that's my idea i we think have, we have we we don't have a gun violence problem in the united states and this is going to sound bad but i'll say it anyway and i don't quite mean it in the worst way it sounds but we don't have a gun violence problem we've got a demographic problem we have a, a society where 5% of our population commits 52% of our murders and and 52% of our gun violence. I mean that any gun control measure that anybody could possibly think of coming up with is going to affect 99.9% of the effect of that policy is going to affect people who would never dream about shooting a human being for any reason other than self-defense. And We've got 400 million guns floating around this country, and it's a massive part of, right or wrong, uh, the fact that America was a country that existed on the frontier where you had to be self-sufficient. There could be Native Americans running around and all that, and we're pushing our way forward. Guns are a part of American culture in a lot of sick ways and a lot of ways that lead – Look, America. No matter what, yeah, and I,
0: in a lot of ways that I don't understand because I come from a completely different culture. So I can understand that. It just that it doesn't change my mind that I think you have too much guns in general. But that's because I grew up in a completely different culture. Again, so here's my difference with you. I can
1: definitely see why it would be, uh, you know, why it would be incomprehensible to people from countries that have been around for a long time. You know, for sure. I mean, but you know, again, there's another thing too. Is that America? You know, I. Part of me loves the schadenfreude that comes with watching how um, countries like France and Sweden and other places are being accused of bigotry toward their Muslim minorities and stuff. Now, there's a certain sense of schadenfreude that a lot of Americans have because they have been talking about us like we are just the worst, most bigoted, horrible, awful you know, hellhole on the planet as far as that stuff goes for a long time. And a lot of people in the United States are being saying, look, nobody in world history has tried to do what we are trying to do right now. I'll okay. get into Sweden at one
0: point, by the way, but in Sweden, what I have I, – I, I'm preparing for a Sweden episode. And what the guy told me is that all of their Muslim policies essentially come from big politics because so uh, there are so many Muslims there that they make a huge part of their electorate. So their politicians just try to piece that electorate. The and they're organized,
1: part. and they're organized, right? And that's like really the that's really the difficulty you run into. I mean, this is again we keep coming back to this the this same word, which is identity. In the United States, and I think across the Western world, right now, the whole idea is that we in in politics we have to get away from identity. What do you think about the economic policies of the candidates? What do you think about the foreign policy? What do you think about blah blah blah? Whatever it is, what do you think about the issues? Well, if you look at the United States today, the only people who are remotely expected to vote according to their opinions about issues are straight white men They're the only people who are expected to look at the economy and foreign policy and all everybody else is expected to vote according to their identity well you fall into this group okay well this is your candidate you fall into that group this is your candidate but you that's into- also kind of racist isn't that Yeah, sure. I mean, that's that's a given for sure. It's not a good thing. It just is what it is. And the unfortunate thing is, you know, you ask yourself what happens to an individual? You know, you look at, uh, you know, people will talk about how you go into an American prison and maybe you weren't down with white supremacists before. But when you go in, you end up being part of the Aryan Brotherhood or you were never a gangbanger before. But you go in and now you're part of a gang. And it's because individuals get crushed in an environment where, you know, tribes are running around and one of the things that becomes very difficult in a place like Sweden for their politics it would be this is kind of what i meant at the beginning where if people just kind of came in and yeah they look different and they speak a different language and they have a different religion food and blah 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 but they kind of just got came in and got jobs and took up their families and went about their lives i don't think you really have too much of a problem but when you have people who come in maybe they're only 10% of your population but they vote as a block right they vote absolutely as a block for are
0: talking about who Latvia right now to their by the then way, that's
1: a very because, form-
0: because our block votes for Putin in Russia and they don't care.
1: There you go there, you go. They do not care. They're voting according to their identity, and when that's the case, it forces everybody else to start looking at their own identity and be like, okay, well, I'm gonna, you know, a 15 percent of the electorate can absolutely overrun the country if they're organized and nobody else is. I mean that's what the history of human government mostly is. It's an organized minority lording itself over a disorganized majority, right? And so when you have a democratic system and somebody comes in who does not care about the issues, they are voting for their group interests. Everybody else is forced to adjust to that and adapt themselves to it. Because if you don't, then you will simply lose. And anybody who doesn't is eliminated from this from the stage. And so one group being intri- being introduced like that is like this little you know it's 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 like dropping a whatever a uh, that, that 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 solution I don't remember what it's called that solution that you can drop a grain of salt into it and it all solidifies and kind of crystallizes that's kind of what happens like one of these groups that is no longer thinking about the body politic as a whole they're looking for their particular group interest and you introduce them into a group of politics that's driven by individualism all of a sudden everybody starts teaming up and building coalitions until everybody is now part of an identity group because you really have no choice and then you're in big trouble i mean you you know you're in real big trouble at that point because it's about who has control which tribe has control you know this is the reason that democracy has been a complete disaster in the middle east is because you don't have countries of individuals down there you have tribes with flags
0: yeah because that's 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 how it works that's how it used to work here in the soviet era as well because you know what we we kind of we kind of care more about brothers over there and our our pals than we care about the government running us that that yes. also happens sometimes in Latvia. It's understandable that
1: yeah. and and you know and so it comes down to i mean Arnold twinby kind of talks about this although not in these exact he doesn't use this exact formulation, but he'll talk about how a society will start to lose its its form and kind of go mushy when the creative minority is what he calls it. He's not talking about any type of ethnic or racial minority, but the, but the people who um, are sort of the ones who are expected to provide the models and the stereotypes and the ideas that the rest of the society kind of takes its cues from and emulates when they fail to kind of provide the care and feeding that this, uh, that this identity project that has allowed people to transcend their biological sort of uh, affiliations, you know, transcend their tribe, even transcend their religion in the United States. So it doesn't matter. You're Lutheran, you're Presbyterian, you're Catholic, and you're Irish, and you're English, and you're German, and you're the That's all fine, because this, we're all Americans. And you know what, Um, you're Irish, and you're German, and I'm french but if the irish germans and french form a coalition and declare war on us then we're going to go fuck them up like because i'm an american and all these other things that i have are important to me but this is the most important thing to me and as long as you have that going then you can have a country of 330 million people who self-govern and who you know kind of hold together and can act act together in a coherent way uh when that starts to break apart and this is not just it's the elites want to blame this on the people on the ground. They want to say that the people on the ground are becoming bigoted and they're you know, sort of breaking up into these identity groups. No, our creative minority, like our, our people who are supposed to actually be providing the inspiration and the models that would, that would give these people a reason to identify with the country as a whole or with the culture as a whole, they have absolutely failed and abdicated in that position completely. And so people are thrown back on themselves. And they're looking around and they're looking for anything out there now that they can kind of attach themselves to so that they don't get completely run over. This is what Nietzsche was, you know, very worried about, right? In the uh, in the gay science, when he's got his madman with the lantern coming out on the street, and it's the whole God is dead passage. And people who have never read Nietzsche, you know, they they, they see that they hear about that passage and they think he's celebrating the death of God and laughing about it. No, he's, he's actually terrified laughed. about it. This,
0: this, he's, this is this Nietzsche is Nietzsche's Nietzsche is dreadful. He's terrified of this and when you speak about Nietzsche, it's funny because, you know, when you, when you start studying philosophy over here, 90% of the people who come in have read Nietzsche and they're like these emo, cra- emo crazy <laughs> guys who think God is dead. Yeah. No, Nietzsche is actually very, very scared of the death of yes. God and death of our old morals.
1: Yes. I mean, he recognizes what kind of creatures we are, right? And he looks at it and says, okay, great. You've taken away their religious identity. What do you think? They're just going to... They're just going to be cool like that, like everything's going to be fine. No, you idiots! They're going to go find another one. They're going to go find another social identity. And sure Holy enough, shit, Daryl, no. we have
0: to we have to do this more often. I, I love talking to you. And don't stop right now. Uh, wait a it, minute. Wait a minute. A thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go I, ahead. Sorry. I, I I'm doing my journalism in the background while you're talking to this because this is extremely important. And five hours ago, I have a nice nice article because we I kind of have to tie Britain into this because we're we're talking about all the Western world and. Uh, five hours ago an article in the independent.co.uk <coughs> Quote uh, the, the title of the article goes As a British Muslim I am terrified that, Therese, that the Theresa May Winner of 2015's Islamophobe of the Year Is my new Prime Minister She already starts by by, doing the, by, by saying that As a as a Muslim British Because that's already an identity question And quoting from the article Few politicians have excelled at damaging entire communities as Theresa May has. While playing lip service to the promotion of British values as a strategy to tackle extremism, May failed to recognize the irony of the draconian counterterrorism and security bill 2015. The policies that arose from this bill taped shut the mouths of Muslim university students to voice their opinions in lectures and seminars for fear of being deemed extremist, making a mockery of that British value, in quotes, Uh, of freedom and speech. It became clear soon after that Bill gives people permission to be Islamophobic, framing uh, as it does terrorism as a, quote, Muslim problem. Although it now humorously (laughs) forgoes common sense to the extent that nursery-age kids are suspected to have radical views... and and in quotes one four-year-old boy was almost referred to as a counter extremism referred to a counter extremism program according to his mother because he drew a cucumber that teachers mistook for a cooker bomb the effects of cts bill remain chilling and and at the end of this article It is and at the end of our book it says, so if she really means it when she says she wants to paw the way for a better Britain, in quotes, May will have to work hard to backpedal on the mistrust and fear she created in her role as home secretary. In an age where a quarter of young people in Britain say they don't trust Muslims, tackling this must be must become a priority before we condemn future generations to prejudice, suspicion suspicion, division, and a permanently fractured country. Now I have a nice question here. Okay. Yeah. A quarter of young people in Britain say they don't trust Muslims. I'm shocked that it's that low. By the way, shocked that it's
1: that low. And there may be even a a, a a bit of an effect where you know people are a little bit ashamed to tell the person that they're talking to, giving them the poll, you know, the 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 true answer on that. Because I, I, to be honest with you, I'm shocked that it's that low. Yeah, because I mean. This, Go ahead and ask all, the question. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, all of this all of
0: this is just what, what we what we have been talking about, this article is just terrified that there is a person who okay, she, she made a mistake with that act, because you know you shouldn't you shouldn't be you shouldn't be sending four year old kids to, to some tolerance camp, whatever, because they draw a cucumber. But yeah this is this is again this we have a new prime minister in, in uk and the first first article from a major UK source that i can find and i'm and i'm following those it's my job to follow yeah, all this sure uh and the first article that i see is about again identity politics and it's like oh my god i'm a muslim and what's going on here how about you kind of you know wait and see if she actually does anything you know that again it's kind of Interesting is that she, she, she also gave her first speech and she's actually going to go with her Brexit means Brexit thing. And, and, then, and then, by the way, the, the, side, the thing that, you know, all, all respectable political podcasts look at all sorts of articles and everything. What they don't look at is the comments. And that's why I respect you, Daryl, because you are the guy who looks at comments for his podcast. And the first comment four minutes ago to this article by, by a user called Mark Lab, <clears throat> quote here, migrants to britain must understand that they are privileged to be there it is not their right they must live inside the rules and respect everyone they must not impose their laws slash rules on the british society so shaheen the sooner you understand that the better of you will be it is also total and utter hypocrisy to suggest that Muslims should be given some special treatment when there is so much wrong in so many parts of the Muslim world Shaheen, you must spend more of your time being critical of the Sunni slash Shia divide, the cause of war, civil unrest, and so much violence in the Muslim world, including, I might, I might add, Britain. Straightly below that, Robert 2012 GB. A phobia is an irrational fear. There is nothing irrational fearing the death cult of Islam and its violence, bigotry, fanaticism, misogyny, homophobia, and supremacism. This person obviously does not know anything about Islam whatsoever. Anybody who cares about democracy, freedom, and equality must be an Islamophobe. Mohammedans have values that are anti thesis of our own. Yeah, you know what? I can understand both of these sentiments. Yep, so can I. In in reading these. And I I can get them. But first things first, I would say to Mr. Robert from Great Britain that he should really... He should really read some things about Islam and look, for example, at pictures of Iran in 1970s. Yeah. <laughs> because those, these are the both ends of the spectrum because <clears throat> people ignore comments. It's like, it's like ignoring polls. Like everyone in the polls in the United States were just saying, no, 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 the polls are wrong. Trump won't, won't get there. No, 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 the polls are wrong. The people are stupid because the people are always the stupid ones, right? and you experts you are kind of the smart ones or something <clears throat> but you have to take, take take like you have to look seriously at all these comment sections i think cuz they they represent something and and if and if, and if there is a person who says legitimately what we've been talking about and this again boils down to fucking identity politics if there is a person here who associates all of islam with a death cult there's something wrong with the person but at the same time if there is a person who previously, the smart club person who gives legitimate criticisms and you put him in the same time, same camp as this Robert, and you say that any criticism is bad, then you know what? If you if you don't allow legit criticism of a certain ideology, for example, criticism of democracies itself, they used to debate whether or not democracy was good in ancient times all the time. They did it yeah. all the time. Right now, it's taboo. Democracy is good. It's an axiom. It's not. Yes. We have forgotten this. Yeah. It, it has lost value in it because... Right now, if you don't debate why something is good, you you forget why is it a good. Yes. And and if and if you don't allow criticism of the rational kind of how Marklap here stated that, you know his his own identity idea that he feels that you know they shouldn't impose any laws. He wasn't disrespectful. If you put reasonable criticism in the same camp as Mr. Robert here, who doesn't know anything about Islam whatsoever, uh, if you put them in the same camp. And call them both terrible bigots. Then there is something wrong with you, because then all criticism becomes terrible.
2: Yes, it, because it, and, and, it, uh,
0: it, and it also it also it also legitimizes Mister Roberts' views, because Mister Robert over here, who obviously doesn't know doesn't know anything, he looks at Mister Mark Club and he sees that their comments are both on the same side. And it kind of legitimizes the bad comments because you know what if my if my civilized comment and the civilized criticism won't go through, then why not go all out? Why would I even care? Why would I even make a civilized argument? Why would I do the effort
1: well and it 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 washes out uh it washes out moderate criticism right because if you imagine like let's say you're a person in our environment today in the United States with everything that's just recently happened in Dallas with the police shootings um If you're a nice, respected, liberal person who, you know, sometimes gets to write for the New York Times and the New Yorker and you've got this career and you're looking at the situation and you've got some thoughts on, you know, the disproportionate crime rate in the black community and certain things like that. You're not going to talk about that because you know that there are consequences to bringing any of those things up. You know that when you go to social events, you might be treated differently. You know that you might not get that callback from the New Yorker. It's going to affect you for bringing up legitimate criticisms because it's not allowed to do. Well, guess what? When somebody looks at the situation and they start to think, you know, I don't know if I really buy all the stuff that I'm seeing right now from most people and they go looking for criticism, what do they find? They just find the people who don't give a fuck. They find the people who are like, you know, extreme, like, you know, edge where these people are terrible and we just need to block. Because they're the only ones who are saying anything are the people who don't have a reputation to protect. You know what I mean? They're the only ones. And so you've either got just completely implausible uh, kind of liberal ideology on one side that becomes increasingly ridiculous to more and more people, you know, as they. As they see, you know, the Orlando shootings uh, by a Muslim of a gay club, and they see it, and the guy's declaring his allegiance to ISIS and shouting "Allahu Akbar," and then you watch the news and you watch the 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 administration, and there's this whole hubbub about how they are just really obviously trying to avoid associating this attack with Islam. And you got, I guarantee you, some every time something like this happens, you got a few tens of thousands more people who are like. And I got to read a little bit more about this. Let me go see like the other side of this. And they go, look, and all they find is crazy anti-Muslim bigotry because they're the only ones who are even willing to speak on it at all. That's, yeah. you know, that's, that's the issue you run into. I mean, and like, this, might is, be and this is
0: how you get a candidate who wants to build a fucking wall on the border of Mexico, which is literally, literally impossible to do. You can't do this. If you, if, I, 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 I can understand what the Trump represents, and I like, I can
1: understand the Trump voters. Doesn't mean I have to like the guy himself. I mean, Trump exists. Um, and, and honestly, this is the same in he a lot of ways. He only exists because Brexit. criticism
0: is not allowed.
1: Really? Because criticism is not allowed, but also because, um, in across across Europe and, and and the Anglosphere for a while now, um, we have had a large group of people who like this is a, this is not a policy election in the United States and, and I would even say that bre- Brexit was not a policy election. They are both cultural elections and, and cultural votes, and people who absolutely feel like they have not been taken account of for a few decades now who who simply have no politicians that consider them a real constituency you know the the Republicans. They would play to you if you were a, an evangelical kind of Christian values voter that cares about gay marriage or something. But the truth is you go around the U.S. And, and you can't escape the idea that the way that all that stuff is played up in our national politics seems all out of proportion to the people you meet. I go through Nebraska and I go through you know, uh, the South and go through Montana and talk to the regular people up there. and You find a couple. They might not like gay marriage or whatever, but it isn't anywhere close to their top – ten thousand priorities almost never and so you say well like why is this such why are these such prominent issues and but yet that's the only bone that this group of kind of conservative working class people have been thrown at all are meaningless social issues that they just keep losing on anyway because the supreme court and, and state courts keep stepping in on it so they just they're just bones that are thrown to them beyond that every time they turn on the tv they're they're just being made fun of for being racist and ignorant and bigoted and uneducated and poor. And they have, you know, both parties have bipartisan consensus on on policies that affect them more powerfully than anybody else from immigration to trade policies and stuff. And nobody has been paying attention to them for a few decades. And finally, somebody comes along who does. They're going to vote for that person. It doesn't matter what that person is saying. The fact that he is speaking to them at all, they will vote for him.
0: Yeah, and it literally doesn't matter in this case because Donald Trump is not a good candidate, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> then again, Hillary Clinton is also not a good candidate, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, no uh... one is a good candidate. As, as, as the guy from, I don't know, The, the Daily Show, I suppose, because I, I watch too much American television, he, he basically said that uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are both lucky. They're running against the only candidate they could possibly be.
1: Yeah, that's probably true. That's, that's probably true. I think that, uh, you know, one of the questions a lot of people in our societies have to ask ourselves right now, and there are people that don't have to ask these questions. There are people who can answer them right away. Um, But I would bet that a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast probably don't fall into that group, Um, is ask yourself the question when you say the word we, when you say the word us, when you say the word our, who, who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? And when you think about who you're talking about. Ask yourself if those people would consider you part of that same part of that same group, and if it's not, you know, you've got a little bit of time left, depending on where you live and, and, and what the situation in your country is. But you know, it's probably about time to figure out, uh, you know, which prison gang you're going to join. I mean, it's just where <laughs> we're at right now. Yeah, <laughs> Well, wow, that's a great comparison, man.
0: What, I, what I'm worried about here is what what, what, what the hell are you going to do with if uh, Putin actually invades us? Because that's more likely than you think. And shit, you're not. If,
2: I, I'm going to do Putin a whole episode in Russia,
0: but it's... I know, I know for one that, you know what? Uh, if Putin actually... If Putin tries to come and assassinate me, then I'm going to move somewhere for a while. But if Putin invades then, holy shit, I'm just going to get up a gun and I'm going to fight
1: here. Of course. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, that's it's one of the things that pisses me off so much about this so-called refugee crisis in Europe. Like anybody who looks at a a train of human beings made up of 75% single military aged males, you're not looking at a line of refugees. You're looking at a, a party of, at a party of deserters. I mean, those are people who like, there's no circumstance. I'm, I'm, I'm a young, strong, able-bodied male. Uh, there is, there are no circumstances in which I could be a refugee in this country. Okay, I am a conscript, and if I become a refugee, then I am a deserter. Like, go fight for your country. Like, what are you talking about? But anyway, that's, well, due due, due, to, to due,
0: like due to my medical condition, I probably wouldn't be on the front lines. I'd be a war corp or something and making news well, whatever, of that. But man, but whatever, good. I would do my best what I can, you know. Like, uh, the
1: U.S., we will, we, will, we will defend the Baltics if Putin launches a conventional invasion against them. What I worry about is that Putin knows perfectly well where that line is um, between conventional invasion kind of fifth-gen warfare that he can get away with. And he's going to toe that line and try to I'm kind continue of, to – I'm kind of interested in the fact that
0: – you know what? When you look at how, what, what, what happened in Crimea, look at how it happened in Crimea – then look at how the Soviet Union invaded the Baltic states in 1940. Yes. The only difference here is that the, the Russian army at, the, at this time has no markings on it. And I really yeah. love the official statements. Oh, no, you, you can buy the uniform at any army store. And one year later, well, yeah, of course we had armies there.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, um, it's, it's not really a civil war that's going on in Ukraine. Well, in the West... And less America, believe it or not, um, outside the administration itself, um, you know, our defense department, our state department, um, our intelligence agencies are a lot more hawkish with regard to Russian aggression than the administration itself is, which is looking for any reason possible to avoid anything messy uh, between now and the end of its, you know, end of its time in office. Um, Dude, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be very happy if, you know what, I've, I have gotten so many
0: there's so many death threats and, like, people telling me that I am being funded by Americans that, hey, I would actually love to be, be funded by Americans <laughs> by this point.
1: Uh, the problem right now is that our political leadership and definitely the political leadership in Europe, they are not looking and trying to figure out what's happening. So when you say that this is an invasion, they're not just wearing uniforms, that doesn't mean anything to anybody because they're not trying to figure out what's happening. They're looking for any reason possible. Not to act. And so Putin knows that all he has to do is not avoid aggression. He just he knows he's not trying to like not step over any lines. All he has to do is give Western political leaders an excuse not to act. That's all they want. And that's all he has to give them. And he knows that. And so as long as he sort of makes a show of kind of trying to hide it and giving us an out so that we don't have to confront the problem. Uh, we will continue to do that. If it becomes anything conventional that threatens the um, that threatens the real stability of a NATO country or the political uh, you know identity of a NATO country, we're not going to stand for that. But but
0: you know it's but... going to be really interesting about Putin. What you're going to say? Uh, and I'll, I'll be using a comment on my own webpage because I, I dedicated a whole episode to Putin and what's going on there. And there's a comment from a listener, Madus uh, from Dark. You you know the guy. He's from Dan Carlin boards too. And he he basically... I'm going to quote him because he puts it very, very nicely. While serving under corrupt officials, Putin managed much of the corruption and has profited enormously. One thing, I think, that gets lost by many Americans who view him as a tough, badass leader is how much Putin has personally profited from the corrupt state that he oversees. Because he has profited insanely. But before his bosses step down, they need to ensure the next guy in charge won't prosecute them. Putin, of course, has prevented any such corruption investigations. The problem for Putin is that he hasn't figured out a way to step down from power, retain his ill-gotten gains and avoid prosecution. He's bullied too much money from too many powerful people. He can't even risk appearing older, tired, maintain a youthful and vigorous look. And one of the interesting people that he actually is managing on top is Chechnya. Do you know about Chechnya? Sure, yeah. The idea is they have this Razman Kadyrov and they had this whole war because Chechnya also wanted independence of the collapse of the Soviet Union. But the problem is Chechnya is an enclave inside of Russia. The other pl- problem is it has most of Russia's oil there. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot of oil. And they're all Muslim. <laughs> all of them. The, yes. the, the Russia is strictly orthodox. Putin is using that as a power base. Now, the thing is they fought a bloody civil war there. They kind of oppressed the, the Chechen the folk, which, I, which kind of tried to get independence. And, and Putin basically put his own crony, Razman Kadyrov, on top there. But Russia UNL- is not a singular state. It's much like the United States of America with separate republics. So Razman yeah. Kadyrov is the governor there. By the way, governors are not elected in Russia. They're appointed, just in yes. case. So Putin has been paying personally to Razman Kadyrov a huge, huge amounts of money just to keep Chechnya in check. You know, stay with us. Don't cause trouble. Keep everything in control. But the the, the amounts are rumored to be about $100 million per week personally to Razman Kadyrov. Wow. He has built his own personal private army. He's literally number two person in Russian power. And you know what? With with all the sanctions, Putin cannot afford to pay off this his crony that controls Chechnya. And Russia has a lot of problems with non-Russian people living living outside of the major cities in Siberia, because much like in Soviet Union, in Russia essentially people are starving right now unless they live in Moscow or Saint Petersburg or the European part. Even even here, if you look at the pictures on Google satellites, if you look at the satellites from Moscow, which is the most expensive city on the planet to live in. Yeah. There are literally no Russians in Moscow anymore. Uh, huh. There are the Russians are a minority in Moscow by this point. Uh, if you live how if you look at how people live outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, they're starving. They're not happy. Putin needs to produce this image of a glorified huge big Russia just for internal stability. So
1: are the approval polls are those are those kind of statements not are made up? Or... No,
0: they're not made up. They they're they're tweaked a bit, but Putin has approval because Russian people like to have their big strong leader because they have been they haven't known real democracy like ever and they're yeah. being fed all the time this message that they are oppressed and that everyone's attacking them and that that putin is just scoring victory uh victory over victory over victory all the time and the stronger the outsider he just rallies the people against an outside enemy which is the united states of america and nato in general the thing is Rasman Kadyrov over there he's He's kind of looking at putin and he's he's seeing that you know Putin can't support him, and he has a private fucking army on his own yeah and and Putin can't get rid of Rasman kadirov Putin can't arrest Rasman kadirov
1: Well so, Khdirov's been flexing a little bit lately too he's kind yeah, of been showing some independence
0: so. exactly, and and he's like he's showing off pro putin things, but I don't know what's going on, but Putin must have a plan how to deal with Rasman kadyrov so if you see that Rasman kadyrov has been assassinated, that's Putin. <laughs> Either Razman, eventually there is going to be a conflict between Razman Kadyrov and Putin, and then holy shit, all hell might break loose. Russia might break apart. Even Uh, Russia might break apart. There might be a civil war. Russia might start another war with actually in the Baltics. Uh, All shit might break loose because Putin is actually one of the few people over there that is kind of the kind of okay. We're, we're okay with Putin over here, because I, I don't think Putin will do anything that crazy. He'll do anything to stay in power and to keep his ill-gotten gains. But first and foremost, he cares only about his own personal profit, if he's even alive. Because, you know, my claims about him being run by the KGB and the, the doubles that he uses are actually pretty damn strong if you listen to the episode. Hmm. Now, the thing is... You know what's the worst part? They still have this communist party there with Zhirinovsky, and what Americans don't see is that we we have all this Russian press over here. And you know what? When a Russian MP says to the Baltic states, to the Baltic journalists, that you know we should totally all in, we should totally invade you, and that openly states that you know nuking Ankara and Turkey would be nice, and openly says yeah we should totally go to war with the United States of America. Let's nuke those motherfuckers. They're all assholes. That's a Russian MP on media all the time. Yeah. Vladimir Zhinovsky and just people don't take him seriously, he's like, ha ha, he's just crazy nonsense. No, there's one crazy nonsense about building a wall, which is just silly, there's another <laughs> crazy nonsense if a guy constantly, always, all the time, for many, many years, uh, states that everything is terrible. And you know what, Back, Like some couple of years ago he was screaming on his national television that Latvian tanks are pointed towards Moscow ready to invade at that
2: time.
0: <laughs> at, at that time Latvia had like three tanks of which maybe one had gone. <laughs> By the way, thank you America. American, Canada has been, it, it never occurred to my life, but Latvian army now has tanks thanks to your country which is amazing. We have M1 Abrams tanks and all of your rockets and shit and everything and it's Wow, my my brother, I mean, my brother is in the, the national guard kind of analog. You know, we call it we call it Zemes Sardz, which is something like national guard. Uh, you know, vo- vol- volunteer military forces. They they have military. They have some military training. They have to go to training once a month. They they have their their automatic guns somewhere. And he was like, Oh my god, holy shit! I just I, previously I had to just learn guerrilla warfare.
1: Now I have to learn how to cooperate with fucking tanks. <laughs> Crazy man. So, what is? Uh, yeah, you. For, well, actually, real quick. Uh, you know, a lot of people in America don't understand the purpose of the small tripwire forces we put in Eastern Europe. A lot of people see that we transfer whatever ten thousand soldiers to Poland or something, and you know, they say, "Well, what are ten thousand soldiers going to do against a Russian invasion?" And the answer is nothing. They're going to get killed. But it's a message to our Eastern European allies that. Look, we got 10,000 people here. If the Russians invade, most of them are going to get killed or captured. And so you know if 10,000 of our people get killed or captured, then we will go to war with you. That's what it's there. It's a token of support to our allies to let you know that if anything happens here, we have your back because we're not going to walk away if 10,000 of our soldiers get killed or captured. Um, So I have a question. What is the attitude of people – I know the attitude of a lot of people in Germany and France and Scandinavia about – U.S. military buildup on the Eastern Front right now. I know we're putting – I actually have got an opportunity to make my way over to Poland to uh, work on the Aegis Ashore ballistic missile shield out there and in Romania. I might end up out there at some point. If you, if you, um, go, to, if you go to Poland, you just must come visit me in Latvia. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And so um, in France and Germany, you go to a lot of these places. They see this and they just see it as a needless provocation of Russia – and why are we doing this? We're going to bring war on Europe. Because needless,
0: needless provocation. I shall now answer you.
1: Well, um, I was going say, I, I sense something different from the Eastern Europeans. That they don't think of it that way at all. So maybe go ahead.
0: Maybe they just don't have. See, France and Germany doesn't have Russian military exercises with. 50,000 people, tens of thousands of people next to our border. G- Germans and French don't have uh, Russian airplanes f- entering our kind of airspace all the time. And Russia and German and French people don't have Russian ships just being spotted very next to our sea border, like every fucking week all the time in the news. Yeah. And by the way, Russia is, uh, for those people who think this is a provocation from NATO, yeah, you know what? Russia has like, Insanely huger amounts of army and forces concentrated next to the border than NATO ever has We think that NATO is not sending enough troops over here because you know what right now There's about 10 Russian troops for every NATO soldier here of course so the local see see as, as we get a lot of Russian propaganda over here in these parts a lot of local Russians think that you know Oh my god, they're it's, it's occupational force, but now actually kind of at least I am friendly to Americans and I, I like the idea of NATO Because you know what? Uh, I have a friend who's like in Norwegian military, and they're also in NATO and my, my country is very small, right? We, we don't have a lot of money either, but we do spend these 2% of our budget, you know, as NATO dictates. So I can understand the fact that a lot of like German, Germans and French, maybe you know, French, do, French do, but, but we, we do our part. And what's interesting is that Latvian army is actually specialized. We kind of have a bunch of sappers and combat engineers. That's what we do. Cause and, and as far as my Norwegian friend was, was concerned about it, he was kind of surprised because we apparently, according to this guy, we have some damn good combat engineers because that's what we do. We literally can't do anything else, so we kind of specialize. I think that kind of makes sense
1: yeah i haven't worked with the latvians at all but i've worked with the polish a little bit and i can tell you that we, the work, way we, we work within the polish forces by the way Poles, they're they're pretty Poles. high quality and I, lo- I they've got a high level of motivation um, but sp- they're specialized as well to a degree and part of the reason is that nato strategy and this largely comes from us you know the idea is that look we can find ground troops um, we can we can put a couple million soldiers in the field to hold a rifle and fire it down range if we have to you in Latvia, you – we don't need you to kill off all your young men by putting them into the front line of a troop. What you have is cultural understanding, language skills, geographic skill, uh, understanding, all these other things that we coming in from the outside are not going to have. And so we need you to be on the front line ready to sort of provide that expertise. And that's really the best way to go about it for sure. Yeah, like, I mean I, I'm, somebody who, who, I'm somebody who has advocated uh, to – Slow it down um, with Russia a little bit right now. But I don't do it because uh, for any moral reason or for anything like that. I do it because um, as somebody who kind of takes a look at these things for a day job, um, you know, people will look at the American military on paper and they'll look at the Russian military on paper. And they'll see the American military is vastly more powerful and and more prepared and and trained and all these things. And we say, what's the problem? Just deter them or do whatever it is. If it comes down to war, Putin definitely doesn't want war because we would kick the shit out of him. And the fact is that, look, in a long war where we were fully committed – then yes, we would kick the shit out of Russia. Yeah, but in that best case th- th- scenario. That's the biggest that- problem
0: over here. We think that Russia will just, you know, overrun us so fast that, you know, then, then it'll just be a done deal, and then instead of a war, you'll have your leaders just making some compromises on the table.
1: And, yeah, you know. and that, that's definitely a, a valid worry, and I would tell all you guys to worry about that. Um, but. One of the reasons that uh, that I've advocated on behalf of slowing it down a little bit is because the simple fact matter is we're not prepared for a war with Russia right now. A lot of people will look at our two militaries on paper and say, "Oh, look at this massive U.S. military and blah blah blah," but you got to understand it, it, is that America has kind of invented this new type of warfare where we can take half a million soldiers and everything they need and everything they need to eat and every repair part and everything and create a supply train 10,000 miles away and actually keep that kind of thing going for an extended period of time. You know, it doesn't matter if America has 13,000 combat aircraft and Russia only has 3,500 if Polish, Latvian and Romanian air bases can only handle and launch sorties of you know 2500 aircraft uh on a regular basis and so that military infrastructure in eastern europe and all the other things that would actually have to go into us being able to pour our resources there in the event of war they're just really not prepared yet that's why we've been pushing the everybody talks about the ballistic missile shield we're building in eastern europe right now as being something that's supposed to protect the united states from uh nuclear missiles from russia Or, or that's not what those are for at all like that Half their nuclear missile silos are you know, not out in the West, and they're not going to shoot them over Europe to get to us anyway. They're out in Siberia, and they're going to launch over the polar circle, uh, uh, and we're not going to be able to stop those things. And even if they launched them over Europe, our vertical launch systems aren't going to pick off but a couple dozen of them, and they're going to send 2,000. That's not what they're for. What they're for is a con- mainly they're for a conventional war when Russia is launching rocket artillery and other type of more conventional things at Latvia, at Poland. You know, not to eliminate cities, but to destroy forces that we can actually provide some air defense, you know, and cover to take that kind of stuff down. That's what we're trying to prepare for. So we're in the process right now of trying to build up the military infrastructure. But believe me, part of the reason that Putin has been as aggressive as he has, you know, from from Georgia to Syria to everywhere else is he knows perfectly fucking well that we could not stop him right now. And all the people out there who are pushing for like harder confrontation between the U.S. and Russia, I will tell them. You need to just wait a year or two. We're working on it. We are not prepared for that right now. We're just not.
0: I just, I just kind of think that, you know, the worst thing that could happen to Russia is that Putin is a bit more worried about his internal – there is something going on in Russia that we just don't know. Yeah. Because uh, I look at the situation on the paper. I don't have the military education as you do or the expertise that you do. But I look at the paper and I see all these benefits of of him doing this. But what really saves us from a global global fucking war right now is the fact that Putin cares more about his own personal wealth. He's a corrupt asshole. He wants to look good and stay in power. Yeah. And and really, you know what? If he would start a war, the, wor- the worst part wouldn't wouldn't be the fact that uh, he would be beaten in the war. The worst part would be that there is one mega powerful tool that can kill any government instantly, especially as corrupt as this one. You can just cut off Russia from Swift codes, right? Yeah, Boom. that's not going to happen. I mean, that we've is not going to happen. We, but that's we, the we worst thing. We advocated for
1: that, and Swift shut us down. Swift took Iran out of the loop for us, but when we asked them to do it to Russia, they, uh, you know, because it's not a governmental system; it's a private company, and they refused to do it. And I understand why they refused to do it. You know, Swift is a private company that is not an arm of U.S. foreign policy. I get that, but yeah, you're definitely right about that. That would do it.
0: By the way, there's an interesting theory, another comment on my Putin's actually dead episode was, you know what, uh, there were a lot of questions about why, why, why doesn't the CIA just assassinate Putin? And there was, there was this guy who just wrote, but, but what if they did already? Ah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm just lighting up the conversation a bit. We, we've gotten into very grim yeah. territory, man.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, th- there's two, two, three hours of that. fucking
0: doom. <laughs>
1: <laughs> One is that people vastly overestimate, thanks to Hollywood and stuff, they vastly overestimate the capabilities of the CIA. It's a great organization in a lot of ways, but it's not all powerful by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and secondly, is that, um, you know, we have this feeling in America um, when it comes to Well, some of us do. I don't even know why I said that. It's obviously not true in the Middle East. But this idea that um, if there's a leader or a regime that we don't like, that collapsing that will produce something better. And I think we all know that that's not true, right? You can bring down the Kaiser if you want to, uh, but that might have some downstream consequences. And I don't think anybody is 100 percent sure that if we bring down the Putin regime, and things get very difficult and very hard for the Russian people, it is not going to be very hard for a Russian demagogue ten times worse than Putin to make the case that the Americans did this to you. NATO did this to you. Yeah, and I have already I have already mentioned some candidates for this position. Um, I mean, you mentioned something near the beginning about uh, it's one of the, we, a lot of the times, the United States, we're like, we're very schizophrenic in the sense that we, or not schizophrenic, we're kind of autistic, where we, we don't, really have any capacity to understand how we come across to other people around the world like to us like we are this big gentle giant who's like an aggrieved victim from 9-11 this we don't realize that to other countries we are fucking terrifying i mean like you know, we are a country that over the last 15 years has shown that we might just decide to kind of invade your country and hang your leader and sort of do this kind of thing. And maybe he deserved it. Maybe he's an asshole. But yes, the point is yesterday we weren't planning on doing it. Now we are planning on doing it and that's what's going to happen. And now your whole region is on fire. And and to other countries, I mean, we are so overwhelmingly powerful and also in a lot of ways so erratic that we are terrifying to them, and so we don't pay enough attention sometimes to how we come across to others. The idea that, like, one thing I don't, uh, you know, that, 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 well, I'll go another direction with that actually. So, what it, what it leads us to do is it leads us to uh, follow policies that have the exact opposite effect of the one that we want them to have because we're not aware of how it appears the other side, right? And so, talk about Putin's approval numbers. They're all up at 85% or whatever, and you mentioned earlier how a lot of uh, you know things that people want to push it gets it gets condemned as Americanization, right we're facing the same exact thing in the Middle East. We have poisoned any possibility of like a progressive Muslim reformation in the Middle East, like it's an actual indigenous movement because now The extremists can just point to any progressive reformers and say, oh, see, they're westernizers. They're American. They're they're trying to make our country. They're Americanization. They're collaborators. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you live in Saudi Arabia and you are a homosexual progressive who is absolutely against the regime. Nobody wants to be called a collaborator. Nobody. Like that is the worst thing you can call a human being as a collaborator in in in, in most places, and so you got these people who now the, the progressives in the Muslim world are keeping their mouth shut because nobody wants to be called a collaborator with the West. You go to Russia is if we're doing if we're if we're presenting ourselves in a way that makes it very 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 easy for Putin to sort of you know paint people who oppose him I mean, as all, collaborators all, all, all with the Russian, West.
0: All of Russian opposition works from Riga because uh, all, of, all of everything got censored. So the main Russian opposition thing works out from Riga or from the United States right now. They've all just fled Russia because <laughs> people nice, have right. been killed there, like journalists right, right. and everything. So it's kind of weird.
1: Yeah, I mean, so, so we don't want to put ourselves in a position where it becomes very easy to paint any opposition … to a regime that is a rival to us um, as a collaborator with us so that you take any indigenous opposition and you just completely wipe it out just because nobody wants to be seen as a collaborator. And that a lot of the times is what we unfortunately end up doing. You know, nobody wants to be seen as a stooge. Like Even like I'll bet – I'm not sure. I'm not familiar with it, but I'll bet in Latvia  when uh there are probably politicians who condemn other politicians for being like american stooges american lackeys oh it's know.
0: not it's not american it's a it's official term is uh, r- r- stooges and lackeys of brussels who are in turn stooges and They're, lackeys yeah, of america
1: right and so you don't want to make that easy for people you know and that it's always going to be there but you want to you want to try to make it less plausible than we do cuz sometimes we do act that way you know we treat our allies like vassals we don't always give them like uh, you know the consideration that they deserve. We don't take their concerns into account. So it becomes very easy for yeah. an opposition leader to condemn a politician as being an American lackey.
0: But the dumbest thing that is go- going on here are, are those people who think that European Union takes direct orders from America and that Brussels are <laughs> yeah. actually American lackey. <laughs> no, 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 th- that's not the case. I Absolutely mean, not. The e- case. Even if America would wanted to dictate European Union, European Union are a bunch of fucking bureaucrats. Yeah. it's it's essentially a confederacy of bureaucracy and we have all these insane amount of regulations and
1: everything and it works slowly and it's dreadful. But therein lies its strength too. We're running out of time on this one for that, but I want to talk to you about Europe because you and I are not as far apart as you probably think. Where I don't are like you the, I don't like the European Union in its current formation. I think that the uh, the ideology behind it is coming from a place that really doesn't have Europe's... Uh, interests at heart in a lot of ways, and it doesn't have any firm idea of a European identity. Um, but the idea of a European, uh, you know, sort of a, a transcendent European identity, I am fully on board with that. And I, and, and the reason that I don't like the people who have been running the European Union or that project in general, is I think that they have done more damage to that project over the last fifteen years than you could possibly than, than any opposition to a transcendent European identity could have possibly done. You know, the fact that they completely failed to take the local concerns of people into account, the desire of people to hold on to their national identity and their, and their cultural heritage into account and just blew over them, called them names, just completely ignored them and demonized them, has set the European Identity Project back decades, if not yeah. longer than- that's and right. I and I that's deeply right. resent them for that because that's something that absolutely must happen at some point in the future, and it's set back a century probably because of this.
0: I I have to agree with you here because you know what if we would actually be friendlier and and if we would arrange this this better, then then like I think it would be much better. Because you know what if if the Polish people want to elect those people that they want to elect, then that's great. It's it's just. Just and this is why this is why people don't, don't understand that you know all the criticism of the Eastern European countries who elect these extra nationalist like right wing parties. The more you yell at them for being stupid and terrible, the more they will go out and vote because they they hate of you course. calling us stupid and that's of the course. same everywhere. Yeah. But I just I just I just see that uh, I would I would love to see European Union which, which is kind of a more of a con, more of a federated state but with like you in America would say, strong states rights, so to speak.
2: Right. Yes. But
0: for one, for one, I like it because our politicians, our political elite over here in Latvia and much of Eastern Europe, they came from the Soviet guys. And the problem with the Soviet guys was that they didn't really learn that the government had changed and that it was kind of wrong to steal from the government all the time That's now. Right. So they're kind of keeping the worst excesses of corruption in check. And they're kind of much better at managing money and that's this is why our ex prime minister Valdis Dombrovskis is now kind of the chief finance guy in the EU and he's a physicist by by profession he has a doctorate in physics and he's a really great guy and 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 another another thing is that what I didn't get is the all the austerity programs over here in Latvia we didn't really feel our austerity program because it was like oh well yeah it's going to be it's not going to be as bad as when we transitioned from the socialism to capitalism okay so then, when we looked at the Greeks, who were like, "Oh no, terrible austerity, over here in the northern Europe, we were like, "Really, guys, you live in fucking Greece. You don't even have to like pay for your heating."
1: <laughs> it's yeah, kinda,
0: I mean if... it's kind of weird because Europe Europe is, is a weird beast, but I think it, we kind of need to need to have this European identity at one point, just to keep up competition, because uh, I, for one, would love to see strong Europe balancing out China and the United States.
1: Well, and it would help um, people like me in the United States because, um, you know, the United States has a a bunch of identity politics groups. And then you have white people who have no. They don't have the language, they don't have the uh, they they don't have any way of even talking about um, organizing and mobilizing to to advocate on behalf of their own group interests in the United States. Right. Um, And if. You could frame that as you as that we are European Americans, and as European Americans, we have rights just like any other group—Latin uh, Americans and African Americans and so forth. Then maybe you could actually organize to advocate on behalf of your group's interests and your group's rights. Right now, we have, you know, I mean, the the, the word white makes people want to pull away from you and kind of run away so they don't get fired from their job. And you start talking about white nationalism, white Americans. It sounds it sounds absurd and ridiculous to 99% dude, of people. Dude,
0: Latvians and Lithuanians are the only folk around who could legitimately talk about white nationalism without being called racist because Balts right. is literally, Balts or Baltas in Lithuanian literally means white. So uh, ah, Balts, go, yeah. Balts are the white people. Slavs, by the way, are the glorious people because of words world. love up. So yeah. And uh, so if there was if there was there. a
1: coherent a really coherent European, you know, transnational identity, then you know, because because without that, what are you going to say? Like Americans are European Americans are from all over the place, and so you're not going to advocate on behalf of English American rights or German American rights. That's just stupid. But you yeah, could advocate because, because on behalf on, on, of honestly, European
0: Americans. Honestly, countries. when when a European he- hears the term, "Oh, I'm Irish American" or "I'm an Italian American," unless you're Daniele Bellelli who literally moved there from Italy, yeah, you're not Italian American. You're just American. Right. Yeah. That, that's how and, we view it. Like five generations removed. No, no, dude, you're an American. Sure.
1: Yeah. And this so, is, if you you know, if there was actually a, a coherent European identity that was working and that was holding together, and you know, maybe then European Americans would find a you know, an, a, people would still demonize it, but you could find some kind of a coherent basis for to advocate on behalf of your own group, and then maybe you could even reach out to the EU in whatever form it was in and say, look, you know, we deserve your backing. We deserve to ha- you know, let's have a relationship. We're European Americans. We came over here. Hundreds of years ago, and over the course of, over the course of time from there, we're your people. You are a motherland, and you know have those kind of connections. But right now, that obviously we're we're far, far, far away from that. I'm probably moving in the other direction. So
0: see, the best thing that Americans could do right now to improve relationships with the European Union is to go and say, hey, you know, uh, we we kind of fought British in a war. We're independent from British. We don't like them. To, we don't like them too. Very improved relationship with continental Europe, man.
1: That's not going to happen. We I know, I know. <laughs> before that'll happen, we'll form up a uh, an Anglo alliance from Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, and Britain before that happens. But hey, Americans have a weird relationship with the continent. And I don't like it. You know, I really I really don't like the sort of, you know, after 9-11 where people are talking shit about the French because they were, you know, against the Iraq war and all that. And it, it really pisses me off, to be honest with you. People love to make jokes about the French surrendering and all that and. They yeah, don't really the fuck know the, fucking history. The, the, the French had like a, a a great military tradition before we had a fucking country. Get get, this, get out of here! Like that just pisses me off.
0: <laughs> French French are I don't know. They have internal politics problems, and French do love their revolutions. Oh, that they sure do. But yeah, they can get down when it comes down to it, for sure. Yeah, but otherwise it's pretty cool. Okay, it's getting late here. I. It yeah. well, we was a good talk, man. It was great. We we really
1: have to do this again, man. I want to talk more about Europe and Russia one of these days, and, and we can talk about other, other things as well. But those things, I, I kind of avoided them a little bit because I knew that we would go off into nowhere land really quickly. This but, is yeah, PDRP,
0: uh, People's Democratic Republic of Podcast. We're all citizens here, and like I said, you know, my, my, I, have, I have I couldn't figure out the tagline for this show, so huh. I have I have like three at this point, uh, making sense voting for sanity there you go you know, that's that's the idea you, you do that you uh, as, as far as i know what we come up with this is read marcus aurelius educate yourself read your local newspaper get involved with your local community and you know what don't care so much about other shit if you're not interested it doesn't matter build up your local communities because i think that that kind of matters it's
1: all i that think matters.
0: that i think that's the positive thing that we can we can get out of this
1: Draw, draw a circle with a 10-mile radius around your house and get around the people that, that you know, that, are, that think like you do, and tell them if there is a widow in this area that is alone, we are fucking up. If there is a child that is hungry in this area, that is our problem. Okay? Take care of your own communities and fuck the national government. I mean if they ask you to vote on something, vote on it as best you can. Take care of the people in your community. It's the only thing you can really do that matters anyway. And you know what? If you come together
0: in a local community and you start arguing about politics, listen to the other guy. I mean, look at him as your friend. (laughs) Look at him as your neighbor. Don't look at him as that guy from the other party, I suppose. That's a good start. That's a good start, man. Uh, Thank you for having me. That was great. That was good, man. Thank you. Uh, Do it again. Yeah. And see you next time. Alright. Bye-bye.
2: This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today.